theyeshiva.net. So there are two forms. We learned there are two forms of yayin. Yayin hamesameach and yayin hameshaker. The first section, he focused, the Balatanya focused on yayin hamesameach. And then he moved on to yayin hameshaker. Yayin hamesameach, both are symbolic, I should say. They're used as symbols, as metaphors. Because we know that there's one type of wine. <laughs> right? It's, it's just how you drink it. There's wine that people drink in order to get drunk. And there's wine that people drink in order to, uh, for simcha. And simcha and getting drunk are two separate things. Getting drunk means getting distracted from yourself. Simcha means getting more in touch with yourself. So it's actually two opposite things, which we'll see. Simcha means to get in touch with your true self. Shikras means yourself is too painful to be with. So therefore you want to get over yourself, or you want to go out of yourself, I should say. Not over, you want to go out of yourself. You want to lose yourself. You want to lose yourself because to be you is very painful. It's full of anxiety, so you want to numb the pain. And by getting drunk and inebriated, it's easier to deal with the burden of loneliness or the burden of existential angst, or whatever the pain and agony is, deeper or more superficial. So generally, yayin hamashakir, when we say yayin that gets drunk, is wine that takes you out of yourself, makes you less alert, makes you less aware, makes you less conscious. Now, on some level, it's a freeing experience, because you know, you're not that self-aware, you're not self-conscious. When people are drunk, they say things that they wouldn't say otherwise, they're less inhibited. But the concept is very different than Yayin HaMesameyach. Spiritually, therefore, he's making this distinction in between two types of drinking. The Yayin HaMesameyach represents that the soul is a grape, and inside the grape there's wine, which means there's an infinite possibility of Ahavas Hashem and Simcha Bashem that every single Jew has within him. A tremendous love and relationship with Hashem, which is an inheritance and the ability to be able to celebrate with Hashem, but it may be concealed. And therefore, one needs tools to be able to extract the wine from the grape in order to be able to bring out the ava and the simcha that is concealed in the grape. And even if a person lives a pure and wholesome life, but there are always layers, what he calls our law, that eclipse the depth of the love and the emotion, and therefore, you need the Sar HaMashkin. Everybody needs a butler. And the butler is the one who will ultimately bring the wine to Pare. Who is the butler? The butler is the <laughs> man who dreams about taking the grapes and squeezing them out and bringing forth the wine from the grapes and delivering the wine to the hands. The Eten Esakois Al Kaf Pare, delivering the wine to the hands of Pare, which here, it's spiritually, Pare is Priya, Gilui, the revelation, the pure revelation of godliness in the soul of the person. You need your Sarhamashkin, the one who is responsible for that, which is also associated with the Koyal Ma'er HaKavana, the voice that arouses Kavana, associated with the Mashkin, with the, with, the, with the windpipe and the lungs, etc. Then you have Yayin HaMeshakeh. Yayin HaMesameach, basically, your focus is to get out the inner love and the inner joy that is there. You know that it's there. You can identify it. You know what's blocking it. You just have to get there. 
just like I'm making wine. I know where the wine is. I just have to do the work. I take the grapes, I smash the grapes, I crush the grapes. Shine, I have wine. But I know that there's wine. I know where the wine is. I know what I need to do to get the wine. That's the process. That's Yairam Esameach. It's the meditation. It's the Hizboinenos. It's the Tefillah. It's the Kol Ma'er HaKavona. It's what he spoke before about the, the synthesis of Yisoyed HaMayim and Yisoyed HaEish together with the Yisoyed HaRuach linking the mind and the heart to bring out the wine from the grapes. But then he says there's another life. And the other life is a much more uh, fragmented life, a more broken life. Or the way we explain it is it's not the person who uh, who uh, even knows how to daven. It's not the person who can experience a davening and what they're feeling is they're just celebrating their relationship with Hashem. They're not, they're not there yet. They're not there. There's so many machshavas that I'm available them. They're so filled with... Uh, with uh, toxicity and thoughts. And it's always about thoughts, more thoughts and more thoughts and more thoughts. They can't even enter into our relationship. They can't even be there. They can't be present. They're too overwhelmed by life. They're too overwhelmed by stress. They're too overwhelmed by whatever, they, whatever is overwhelming them. The stress, the crush, the addiction, the, the whatever, every, everybody according to their life story. Here, the issue is far more dramatic. So, so when, when we're saying that for these people, for example, he was compared to Kriya Shmalamita, and everybody says Kriya Shmalamita, even the people of the highest level, even the person of the highest level yeah. is seeking down into whatever underlying... Sometimes it's just the... Tamad Chacham Shanim to revolve. Like we said, you know, they revolve, the, the state. Chaim Vital writes, he says, why did my Rebbe say Hashamnu Bagadnu every day? He says, I knew that reason. Every day he gets up and makes all the confessions. All the confessions. And he says that, uh, that the more spiritual a person is, the more he feels connected with everybody else. So therefore their life story affects him also. The Jewish people are like one body. That's why we say a shamnu in the plural. Really, confession should be in the singular. You don't come and say, we sinned, we stole, we betrayed. You say, I, the first prerequisite for confession is personal responsibility and accountability. Somebody comes into you and says, oh, we slandered you, we backstabbed you, get out. <laughs> Who's the we? <laughs> Me and my family and my tribe and my nation? I. So the Chaim Vital brings, so that, that, that is a shamnu because... Um, the achtos, the, the integration, the, the synergy that comes together from Klal Yisrael. Klal Yisrael Arevim's episode. So our lives, you know, affect each other unconscious way, in conscious ways and even more perhaps in unconscious ways. So Kol Chadlofim Shiradaleh. So here there's a second type of wine which is Yayin HaMeshaker. Now literally Yayin HaMeshaker means wine that gets you drunk. But here he's using the idea, when Shleim HaMelech says in Mishle, Tnu Sheikher Lo'evid Nefesh, Tnu Sheikher Lo'evid V'yayin L'monei Nefesh, Yishte V'yishkech Reisha, literally it's translate, give liquor to a lost soul, give liquor to a lost person, give wine to bitter souls, let him drink and forget Reisha, forget his pain, forget his agony. It's like people will say, you know, this, you had a hard week, just get stoned. 
That's what it seems like the Pasuk is saying. You're an Ovid, you're a Mar Nefesh, it's a bitter 11. A bitter 11 here. They say there was once a Jew who went to a bar, like all the jokes. So uh, he's sitting there and he's minding his own business and he's drinking cup after cup after cup, you know, to, uh, <laughs> to numb a little anxiety, I guess. There's a lot of anxiety. And uh, so this fellow, this muscular, uh, big, strong fellow comes over and grabs the cup and just, and just downs it. And the Jew is hysterically crying in it. The guy says, relax, relax. I'll buy you another cup. What's the big deal? Relax. He's crying. He says, what are you crying for? He says, you don't understand. My life is miserable. And I decided after years that I want to kill myself. And finally, finally, I got the courage to get poison and to come into the bar <laughs> and to put it into this drink. <laughs> finally, to put it into this drink. And now you come and you... <laughs> 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 Anyways, <laughs> so now the guy went to cry, you know. <laughs> so Sayyidina Malik says, let him drink. And you have it in halacha. Where do you have it in halacha? That mashkin, that mashkin, haruge bezdin mashkin, so literally it means you don't want the person to have the pain of death. So you have them drunk. It's a Gemara Sanhedrin and Gimel based on Yishtabish This is all in Gashmias, but here he wants to describe it spiritually as an Indian in Avodah Hashem. That sometimes a person needs Yayin Hamashakar. In other words, here the idea is Yayin Hamashakar represents I'm not ready yet for a relationship because there's too many things that distract me, there's too many things that sit on me, and I may not even know it. And this is a very important idea. If somebody's walking around with a washing machine on their head or on their shoulders, one, I should say, one washing machine on the right shoulder, one washing machine on the left shoulder, but you never knew what it means to walk around without a washing machine because as a kid, you walked around with both of these washing machines. So therefore, that is life. You don't even know what another experience of life is. So the person is so burdened by life's experiences, or by, I should say, not by, we're not burdened by life's experiences, we're, bored, we're burdened by our thoughts about life's experiences, always. But they're so burdened by their perception of their life experience, or by their reality, that they could never, they never have the mental space to absorb, and they have never the mental space to give. And they don't have the mental space to be in a real relationship. Because to be in a real relationship means you have to be fully present. But to be fully present... It means that you have to be able to be right here in the moment, in the relationship. So he says the Nikud of davening is to really dance, to celebrate with Hashem, with tremendous simcha, but if I'm distracted, I can't be sameach with anybody. I, do, I go through the motions, I could come to a chasen, I could dance five times, say mazel tov, give a kiss, leave a check, that's the main thing, and go home. So I went through the motions, we're not talking about it, we're talking about full presence. Full mental, full emotional, full psychological, full spiritual presence. You know people who could be fully present? You don't know anybody? It's not so easy to be present. Because there's always something going on. And I'm not talking about what's going on consciously. What's even more going on is what you don't know that's going on. It's just forever going on. It's going on since you're two. It's just always there. And it sits. It sits in a very, very profound place. 
so we, 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 we're all survivors. You know, we learn to survive. We learn to navigate the hikes of life. We do that. And some of us do it very skillfully and successfully. And some of us even do it with charm. And some of us do it with successful and eloquent social skills. So we do it. Some of us do it well. But that has nothing to do with full presence. Yayin Amashakir, therefore, is the wine that can try to move that away. <coughs> to move all that away, that the person who has an issue with as we explained, the heart is full of stone and so forth. When I'm in that state, that my heart is stoned, you tell the person, start davening and have simcha. They don't even know what you're talking about. And when they do try to do it, it just intensifies even more the problem because it's coming from a space of that distraction of guilt. When it comes from a space of guilt, you never reach that space. It's just another burden. Now the burden is, be besimcha. You ever heard somebody tell that to you? Be happy. So that becomes now a new burden. <laughs> now I have to be happy. So I'm even more miserable. But of course, I'm happy about my misery. <laughs> or I'm miserable about my happiness. Now it becomes another exercise. of Now you have to be, why aren't you happy? Why aren't you happy? Everybody Shlomo wants you to be happy. Okay, I'm happy. I'm so miserable that I'll tell you I'm happy also because it doesn't really mean anything. I'll smile. smile. Okay, we smile like the photographer says smile. If I'm not ready to go into a deeper place, I can't experience it because there's too much going on. There's so much static. This is this 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 guy. And now he's going to describe what this is. What, what is this process that we've been talking about? Fascinatingly, he quotes here a Zohar which he's going to ask a question on the Zohar, which the question itself is, is very telling, just to ask this question on the Zohar, and then give a whole different interpretation to the Zohar, which I think is very humbling just simply to see how a person reads a line, and nobody would even think to even interpret it that way. So this is the next stickle. The line starts with Shlemus. You see, Lamed Aleph, uh, column one, uh, what is it, page 61, right? Lamed Aleph, column one, and the line is... Uh, Okay, Let's explain this. He said the last line. I'm just going to read the line before. You want to get rid of the condition that what was he mean? Lakabal misses Bezdin. <laughs> he doesn't mean you should kill yourself four ways. In other words, you want to accept on yourself the Dalad misses, which means you want to cleanse yourself from the four conditions that created a situation where your heart is full of stone, or your 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 body and your soul is full of addiction, full of passionate passionate cravings that are very distracting to you, or hereg, meaning beheaded. Your mind is detached from your body. There's no uh, connection between your mind, the brain, and the body, which is what beheading means. And chenek, strangulation. In herek, the mind is gone. And in chenek, the passageway between the mind and the heart is gone. So somebody wants to cleanse themselves from the situation. So, so Shlema Melech says, you're a bitter soul, you need a drink. What's this drink? It says in Zoyar... This is Zoyar Dafresh Chav. Zoyar Chelak Aleph, which is Reish Shmois Vayikra, the first volume, Reish Chav. Hine is a Bezayar Kadesh, Zakoik Shoit. 
Kshoit means, Kshoit uh, in Aramaic is truth, truth. Zakoi Kshoit. The people of truth, Tzadikim, are Zakoi, they're privileged. Why are they privileged? Because every day they look at themselves as though this is their last day. That's how they look at themselves. How does everybody learn the Zoya? Basically, they don't get drunk on anything. They always ask themselves, maybe this is the last day. Whereas the Gemara says, Right? If somebody can't deal with the Yitzhahara, That's Papashas. In other words, they have a certain uh, sobriety or sensitivity to the fact that this may be the last day of their life, and therefore they live it in a certain way. That's what literally the Zoyer is saying. Call Shayu, or as the Mishnah says, Shuv Yoim Echad Right? Do Shuva one day before you pass on. So the Gemara says, they ask the Tana, "How do you know when that is?" And he says, "That's exactly the point." Shuv Yoim Echad <laughs> this doesn't make sense. Why? What's the problem? Generally in Zoya, when it says Zakoi, those who are Zakoi refers to Satan. You say Zakoi Kshoit, it's talking about those who are both Zakai and Kshoit, is even Tzadikim of a higher level. And yet, the literal interpretation of the Zoya, the way the Mepharshim learn it, is that every day they imagine this is their last day, and therefore they're going to have to face God and face the alternative of Olam Haba, or otherwise. And therefore they behave. So he says, the whole shvach of a real tzaddik is Yiris Ha'inesh, that he's just afraid of punishment. That's it, it is. In other words, that I might die today, and the game is over, and I'm going to have to face God and be accountable for everything. <laughs> And if I don't behave, the consequences may not be rosy. And therefore, they behave every single day. Okay, it's a very nice thing. But he says it would seem that Zakoik Shait are motivated by more than just Yiras Ha'inesh, the fear of punishment which will happen in the next world. And therefore, they have to imagine that here today, I'm going to stand by the best of Shalmayim. There is more to the Tzaddik than just Yiras Ha'inesh, which seems to me a lot, which seems to be a lower rung in the spiritual and emotional development of a human being. completely different. The Zoya is not saying they treat every day as the last day. In other words, thinking about you're going to have to, you know, be accountable and there may be some serious consequences and therefore don't do any stupid things. That's not the Vart. The Vart is something else. Even a complete Tzadik, when he goes to Ganeidin, even a tzaddik who goes to Gan Eden needs to go to the mikveh first. The name of this mikveh is Nahar Dinur, the river of Dinur. Dinur in Aramaic is fire. Nur is fire. Right? You remember in Chadgadia? Nura? Nahar Dinur is the river Dinur, of Nur, of fire. The tzaddik must go into a mikveh. Why? We're talking about a tzaddik gomer. So he's not tame. I understand why some people need a mikveh. But l'chayri, he's tar, he's going to Ganeidin. He still needs a mikveh. What is it? The tvila is to remove the memories of this world that will distract 
his experience. The person will not be able to inherit, will not be able to dwell, to uh, own, to really own, inherit, his space in Ganeidin, as long as he remembers even a mixtus de mixtus of Inyan Le'elam as long as he still remembers, in other words, he's still attached to the experiences that he had in this world, he will not be able to fully experience Ganeidin because he will be pulled in a different direction. He won't be able to be fully present there. When the Navi says, Every month and every Shabbos, all flesh come to bow down before God. Which in Sifri HaKabbalah, in Zoyer is referred to the Aliyah in Ganeidin, every Shabbos, every Rish Chodesh. Neshamas in Ganeidin are also on a journey, a very dramatic journey. Every Shabbos, the Neshamas go to a different place. Every Rish they go to a different place. So there's perpetual Aliyah, the yard site. The yard site is a special Aliyah for the Neshama. That's why this Kadeshim then. These are times of transition within the soul itself, wherever it is in Ganeidin. So each time, he needs a new mikveh and a new river. Why? Now he doesn't have to forget Elam Haza anymore. Now he's already been in Ganeidin for a thousand years. But you know what? If he wants to go to a new space in Ganeidin, he has to forget the old space. If, he, if he's still attached to the Hasaga, to the comprehension that he had in Ganeidin Atachten, and he now wants to go to Ganeidin Elyon, it's not going to work. Or even if he's in Ganeidin Elyon, but he wants to go to another Ganeidin Elyon, a higher space, the memories of the previous Ganeidin will obstruct and distract his ability to be able to settle and inherit the new space in Ganeidin. So between every aliyah, between every major transition, there's a need for a new mikvah. What's the concept of tvila? Tvila is a person goes underwater, and if they remain in that state, they can't live anymore because they don't have the oxygen that they need. In other words, it's not death, but it's a semi-form of death. It's a form where I completely go into a space where I can't live anymore. And then I come out of the mikveh. You're not supposed to stay in the mikveh too long, underwater. But even if you have a here, right? We know the dinam of chatzitza. A woman goes to a mikveh. When well, halachas of mikveh, even a small here, a little chatzitza in the fingernail, what's the big deal? So, so there's a here outside of the mikveh. So one fingernail, the water didn't go into. And the pshat is that if it's not the totality, if it doesn't affect the totality of the person, it's not like the child in the amniotic sac where there's no hair sticking out. The whole child is in the water in the mother's womb. No, the whole person. Spiritually speaking, the tefillah, tefillah, which, by the way, the, the Balatanya's son writes is the same letters like habitl, hey, base your teslamit, same concept, is the neshama going completely submerging into this mikveh, which allows it to assume its new space, not only from Olam Haza and Olam Haba, even in Olam Haba itself, different chines of Ganei. Even though there's no gashmis. There's no gashmis. In other words, the forgetfulness, the forgetting here is not forgetting something bad, evil, negative. It was divine. Ziva Shechina. This neshama was in Ganeidin Atachten for who knows how long. Ganeidin now you have neshamas that are in Ganeidin for thousands of years. <laughs> and they're not bored. It's hard to know. What do they do there? What's the idea there's no the Trump. There's no Hillary. What do they do there? The neshama no, huh? the was in How could it be that it's different at a certain point? Well, Hashem Himself is ain't safe. The divine is infinite. So, therefore, the more you grow, the more frustrated you are. <laughs> Always. 
And the more you grow, the more curious you become. When you're dealing with something finite, so the more you get, the more you reach your goal. Okay, I'm almost done. When, you dis when you're dealing with something infinite, the more you have, the more thirsty you become. Of course. And not only that, the frustration is much deeper. Because you be the more acute, the more you become aware of infinity, the more you realize how much you don't know. <laughs> and you realize that the lack of knowledge is essential. It's, it's an inherent ignorance. <clears throat> I wouldn't use the word purification. I would, the word he uses is is to forget. Let me explain what this means. Why, why do you have to forget something? Don't we think it's good to remember? <laughs> people come to the doctor, I'm forgetting things. It's not a compliment to forget, right? We always, people, what is it called when you start forgetting things? Uh, Alzheimer's. A senior moment. A senior moment. When Reagan, President Reagan, got Alzheimer's, so he said, right, they said that he said, uh, life is wonderful. I keep on meeting new people every day. <laughs> Generally, memory is, is, is a gift. Yeah, there was an old woman who once gets up and she says, you know, when you get old, two things happen. The first thing is you lose your memory and the second thing I don't remember. <laughs> to remember is a good thing. Remember, memory. And in, in a lot of therapists, one of their big things is take people down memory lane. <laughs> it's not so funny always. They want you... They want you to remember and remember and remember. And if you don't remember, everything is not good. Remember what happened then. Remember what happened then. Right, right. But there's a Gemara in Baba Metziah. The Gemara says in Baba Metziah, the B'zayda, Kad Allah, La'aradi Yisrael. Yosif, Ba'ar Boyim Tanesa. Or one Gersam Meya Tanesa, Gadei Lishkoyach Talmud Bavli. Reb Zayda was making Aliyah from Bavl to Yisrael, so he fasted 40 or 100 fasts, so he should forget Talmud Bavli, so he should learn Talmud, you're able to learn Talmud Yerushalmi. Now imagine somebody tells you, he went to Mifal Hashas for 25 years, he knows the whole Chaz, Talmud Bavli, and now he's going to Talmud Yerushalmi. You say, no, 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 you got to forget everything you learned. It's the other way around. The more you know, the more you build on it. It's like a foundation. You don't say get rid of first thousand floors so we could build the next floor. The contrary. You build on it. Literally, practically, you have all this knowledge. So now you can appreciate context, the references, sources, cross-referencing. There's more depth. Why would the Bzeda fast, a hundred fast to forget Talmud Bavli? Okay, the Chiroinim wonder, it's not a Pashat to think. It's a laugh. It's a separate in you. It's a separate sugya. But, uh, but the Havana you have to understand, what's the Indian? The Pshat is, we shouldn't forget things. I mean, we will. But it's generally a person, of course you don't try to forget something. But that's only if you don't have to make a transformative leap from one space into a space that is completely beyond. When the transition is relative, then you build on the former. When the transition, the transformation is a quantum leap, then the former experience obstructs the new experience. It simply disturbs the new experience. I'll give you a very practical example. If you're listening to somebody say something, the general tendency, especially by Jews, is to fit it into everything they know. I told you once 
But one of the worst compliments I can get is I finish a shear sometimes, and somebody tells it reminded me of that which I heard a few years ago, or that which I read here, or that which I thought about the same thing on Shabbos. Okay. Uh, from his perspective, Gewaldic, he's bringing a raya, he's connecting it, and so on. But then I realized, either I didn't say, the, I didn't say it well, or he didn't understand it well, because this has nothing to do with what he read and what he learned and what he saw, with all due respect to what he read and what he learned and what he saw. But it's very hard for somebody to hear a new thing. It's scary to hear a new thing. I don't want to hear new things. Huh? We like to hear new vertlach. We don't like to hear new ideas. We like to hear another pshetl that confirms everything I believe in. It affirms everything I'm comfortable with. Right. An idea that is contrary to every, anything how you saw things. That's scary. That I reject. Therefore, if I hear something, I'll right away put it into the box. Oh, this fits with that. This fits with that. This fits with that. In other words, I'm never listening to anything. Never. Jews don't listen to anything. Trust me, I don't listen. What am I doing? I'm working very hard over time to respond to make sure that it doesn't threaten me. That's what I do. That's what you do. And if it does, I say he's a Meshugana. Or even better, he's an Apikairis. And then you're done. Fine, if he's an Apikairis, I don't have to deal with it. And if he's a Meshugana, I don't have to deal with it. Children are the only ones who listen. That's why they remember everything. Because they actually listen. Adults usually stop listening. At some point, we don't listen anymore. We just don't have the math. We heard everything. We don't listen. What we listen to is, yeah, either if it, make, uh, it, it confirms, or if it's a little challenge, we'll force it to, to confirm. Therefore, if I want relative growth, you don't forget. Whenever there's a need for real transformation, I have to be able to let go of everything. Because if I don't let go of everything, that is going to hold me back from experiencing a new paradigm. How do you let go of everything? Now, when we learn Talmud Bavli, Talmud Yerushalmi, trust me, you shouldn't forget Talmud Bavli before you start Talmud Yerushalmi. Talmud Yerushalmi is a different type of learning. Now you ask me, what, what are you talking about? What, take out a Talmud Yerushalmi and learn it's a Mishnah, it's a Gemara. Because we learn already... We learn data. We don't learn existential truths. So when we learn Gemara, we're not really learning the Gemara. We're learning the prescription of the doctor. You understand? Every Svara in Gemara is based on philosophical, psychological, and spiritual paradigms. What they give us is the last trickle. It's the final, final vart. The Tanoim and Amirayim, they had a way that they looked at the world. They had Yisoides that were very, very deep on every level, philosophical, spiritual, psychological, emotional, social, and therefore halachic, legal, and so forth. Beis Shammai, Beis Silo, Rebbe Kiva, Rebbe Shmo, Rebbe Yossi, Rebbe Shimon, Rebbe Yehuda, Rebbe Meir, Rav, Shmuel, Abaye, Rava, Rishlokish, Rebbe Yochanan, Rabbe, Rebbe Yosef. But this is beyond the text. This is the soul of the text. And the soul of the text itself is layer upon layer upon layer. Talmud Yerushalmi was a whole different existence. It's a different paradigm. Well, Atanya says, Talmud Bavli is a straight light. Talmud Bavli is a light that bounces back. It's a light that comes from struggle. The Gemara says, Yirmiyanavi says in Shivani, you put me in darkness. The Gemara says, Talmud Bavli is called darkness. 
Yirmiyah Hanavi is lamenting in Eicha that we're going from Eitz Yisrael to Iraq, the Babel, we're being introduced to Talmud Babel, being introduced to the world of darkness. Talmud Babel is the world of darkness. And yet, Halacha Kebabli, not like Yerushalmi. Why? Because if you don't work through darkness, you can't get to the light. But it's a different type of paradigm. It's a different modality. And the modality of Bavli would not allow Rebzeyde to experience Tamil Yerushalmi. It would not. He had to forget it. He had to, doesn't mean he had to forget the facts. That's why it doesn't mean he had to forget what the myth was. He had to forget the Mahalach nefesh the experience of Talmud Bavli. The same is true in a person's life. Whenever a person is looking to make, a, whenever a person is expected to go through a profound transformation, if they still retain a little bit of the old self, for safety reasons, it works for safety, but it does not work for growth. Real growth requires complete obliteration, which is always scary. Because when I jump off the roof, I don't know that the mattress is there to catch me. <laughs> so I always hold on to something just in case. But the paradox is that if I don't jump, the mattress can't come out. I mean emotionally. I don't mean to physically jump. So this is the example of the seed. You take a seed, a seed of an apple tree, a seed of an apple, you plant it in the, in the ground. An apple tree is not going to grow before the seed completely decomposes and rots. The moment of decomp decomposition is painful because there's nothing left. At least if you would have this seed on your counter, you have this beautiful black seed, you can decorate it, you could laminate it. <laughs> you put it in the ground, it decomposes, nothing left. But it's that state of ayin, of nothingness, that allows the metamorphosis from the lower yesh to the higher yesh, from the lower state to the higher state. It's the moment of decomposition that is really the moment of rebirth. Because till the moment of decomposition, I'm still holding on to an old paradigm. Emotionally, what that means is, we learn to live with certain paradigms that may be painful, but they keep us alive. It's called survival skills. We just live with it. It's like you, you learn to cope. To let go of all of that, what is going to remain of me? Nothing. That's why, this is what I'm going to talk to your Ebbetsons today about. That's why Light's wife has to turn around. You know why she has to turn around? Because she believes that if she is taken out of Zdoim emotionally, there's nothing left to her. <coughs> she will not recognize herself. There's no person. The only person she could recognize is the person in Zdoim. There's no other person. So he says, don't turn around. It's a new life. There's no such a thing. I, I will die. There's no me. So we always turn around. We need that older self to be able to give us some sense of identity. The Jews don't stop telling Moshe, Nitna Roish Mitzrayim. Egypt is the place. That's the place. They were abused in Egypt. But that's what they know. At some point they say, We remember the sushi that we ate in Egypt. They're not saying they want to go back. We just want to retain a shmet. Yes. We don't want to go back, but we need the Egyptian paradigm. And Moshe is like, you're on a new path. We don't know that path because it's too, it's too shocking. I must have my old self. I must have. The addict's greatest fear is recovery. His greatest fear is recovery. Because the addict self is a horrible self, but it's a familiar self. The battered woman, the greatest fear is independence. Because the new life, I don't know. 
the old life, look, I survived. I'm beaten, I'm battered, I cry all day, but I'm here. I'm here. And that's what we do to ourselves emotionally. The Bzeire says, no, you have to forget the Chayshech in order to experience the Oyer. So even Ganeidin Ha'elyoin becomes a distraction. Understand, we're not talking here about distractions of abuse. Trauma. We're talking here the trauma of Ganeidin Ha'elyoin. What type of trauma is that? It's Zivashchina. But when you're dealing with infinity, subtle distractions become worse than brute distractions. Ganeidin Ha'elyoin could sometimes be a more subtle distraction, but therefore a more profound one. Because it's the particle of dust on the, on the more refined lens. And the particle of dust blurs the whole vision, blocks the whole vision. We don't say remember Mitzrayim. Remember Yitzias Mitzrayim. <laughs> that you have to remember. Remember every day that you're capable of going out of Egypt. That's not easy. You think Stam the Titus has to remember Yitzias Mitzrayim twice a day? We see it as a boring mitzvah. Okay, here we go again. Lamantis Kudu, Lamantis Kudu, Lamantis Kudu, Lamantis By the way, you know we went out of Mitzrayim? Oh, yes, I learned it. Every child, right? Nonstop. Yitzias Mitzrayim. But if every child was told, if every 10-year-old and every yeshiva was told, if every 14-year-old girl was told, you know what you have to remember Yitzhak Mitzrayim twice a day? Here's the deal. Whenever you wake up, naturally, de facto, we fall into a place of confinement. And twice a day you have to remember that you are never, ever, ever a victim of any confinement. Not addiction, and not depression, and not mediocrity, and not fear. You are capable of removing all your shackles and being free today. Now the question is, why only twice a day? <laughs> it should be a chi of every minute to mention Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Why only twice a day? <laughs> In other words, morning and evening, that's a paradigm. So therefore, forgetting here is not forgetting the facts. Remember the facts. It doesn't mean here forget. You have to forget the facts. When the Shema comes in the Gan Eden, the Shema has to forget Tefillin and Tzitzis and Sefer Torah. Well, it's a tzaddik served Hashem their whole life in their lamaz. I have to forget everything. I have to forget my family. I have to forget. It's not pshat. Zoycher here means a different type of memory. There is memory where you're free and there's memory where you're attached and you're not free. Throws uh, what on grosses. You remember the moment. Yes. Put it on a plate. Then you you mean murder, 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 You quarantine the experience and you solidify it in a moment. <laughs> you solidify it. When 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 Yosef calls his son, he has a son Menasha, his first son. He says, "Nashani elikim eskol amoli veskol beisavi mikates." Hashem made me forget the house of my father. Really? Yosef forgot that he had a brother Yehuda? I promise you he didn't forget. <laughs> if he forgot, how did he then expose himself to reveal himself and say, I'm your brother? I forgive you. Well, you I thought you forgot everything. Forgetting doesn't mean forget. I don't know the information anymore. You could know everything. Forgetting here means I'm not living there anymore. Let go. I let go of it. Very good. I'm going to try to do that. Let go of it. So the memory is there, and then the memory will actually be better. <laughs> because you will be able actually to see it for what it is, and not to see it for how it affected you, which is never what it is, but how you internalized it at the moment. You'll actually be able to see it for what it is. In other words, you'll also be able to see it from the other person's perspective. Because it doesn't define you anymore. You still are going to remember the facts. Yeah, I don't think the Zayda had to forget 
Baruchas Daf Beis that every kid could know, and he had to forget it because <laughs> you can't learn Talmud Yerushalmi if you don't know what uh, what uh, what the Gemara says in Bavli. It means now, that's why nobody here has to forget Talmud Bavli to learn Talmud Yerushalmi. But you'll probably forget it anyway without fasting a hundred times. Two days pass and you forget, right? Or even one day pass. A yid came to, I read in one of the magazines, a yid came to Reva, one of the books, a yid came to Rev Eliyashev a few years ago and he said that he has a terrible memory. He, doesn't, he forgets all the Gemaras that he learns. So he asked him, how many times do you chazer the Gemara? He says, four times. He says, that's not a bad memory. That's a normal memory. He says, if you learn every stick of Gemara 60 times and then you forget it a day later, then come back to me. You learn it four times, you forget it. Is already, that's, that's a normal thing. People forget. That's, that's normal. <laughs> Especially Gemara is even easier to forget. But uh, here we're talking about the Zurich being attached to a certain model. Now, a person may not even understand what this means. What models am I attached to? It may be so deep. I don't have another model. I'm not attached to anything. This is life. That's exactly what you've got to get rid of. Because I don't even know. That's the issue. And that's where the Yayin Amashaka comes. If I know... Okay, I may not even know. I'm not attached to anything. I'm just living. I don't have a washing machine on me. It's invisible. <laughs> I don't have it. I'm not living by anything. I'm just a free person. But a free person is a free person. That was profound, no? <coughs> so therefore, when the person is not aware of the modalities that define their life, that itself becomes a much deeper prison because I don't even know what's going on. I'm just assuming that this is it. I'm assuming that this is freedom. So it's a person who was born in a dark pit in chains and doesn't know that there's life. They don't even know that the sun shines outside. And some people can go through their whole life like that. And they can't even imagine that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. What do the New Yorkers say? Why are people in New Jersey so depressed? I'm sorry. They say, the Jersey say, why are people in New York so depressed? Because you would also be if the light at the end of the tunnel was New Jersey. You understand? <laughs> so, they don't, but, but that for that... I once told somebody there's light at the end of the tunnel. He says, yeah, but there's no tunnel. <laughs> there's no tunnel. There's no light. There's nothing. Stam garnished. <laughs> the title in with the snake. They get the snake in the middle with them. They don't separate. Title with terrors beyond them. I don't even know there's something to separate. I don't even know. There's something called happiness. And therefore I call misery happiness. I don't even know that there's such a life. I never had the chance. How would I know? No one ever taught it to me. And it's not about information. It's about experience. Experience. You meet a person, they're in prison their whole life. They don't know there's something called freedom. Then something happens that becomes unbearable. They think it's the worst moment in their life. It's actually the best moment of their life. Because the, un- one second, the unbearable moment is what allows them to say, wow, I've been living in chains. So their worst moment is really their best moment. Always. Their worst moment. Why? It's the moment of decomposition. It's the moment when you say, I hate this. This is crazy. This is sick. You know, the Svasema says, What's So he says, I will take you out from a condition in which you're being soivel mitzrayim. That's the beginning of Gula. Civilized from the word Savlanut. You learn to be Soivil Mitzrayim. You learn to tolerate Egypt. You learn to tolerate injustice. You learn to tolerate abuse. You learn to tolerate hate. You learn to tolerate dysfunction. 
That's the Golos. The Golos is not the dysfunction. That's not the Golos. That's Kahula. <laughs> That's Kahula. The Golos is that you call it functionality. You call it goodness. You call it holiness. The Golos is not that you know you're in Golos. That's already Chatzi Gola, trust me. Shailas Chachim Chatzi Tshuva. You know the expression. A question of a Chachim is a Halbet Tshuva. You can ask the doctors here. A good diagnosis, you're in a good shape. <laughs> it's chatzi trupa. A good diagnosis. That's not the issue. The issue is when the illness is called health, when idolatry is called God, when dysfunction is called religion, and when stupidity is called frumkind, etc. And when abuse is called Kabbalah soil, whatever. All the good things. That's the tragedy. Because then there's no way of going out of it. You know, Rabbi Yonis and Ayipshitz, who knew a thing or two about Machloikas, said, Kol Machloikas, Shil Hashem Shemayim, Seifel Liskaya. The Mishnah. So he says, what's Pshat? He says, a Machloikas where God is part of it is going to endure forever. Machloikas, Shemel Hashem Shemayim, Seifel Liskaya. Now, we're arguing about money, so there's a way to deal with it. If we're arguing about God, it's not me. <laughs> It's not me. It's not my ego. It's not my power. It's not my issues. It's God. So how can I have a pshara? So machlokes shilashem shemaim seifel is going to last forever. Why? Because you're not allowing a road to redemption here. Because there's no awareness of dysfunction. Everything is perfect. Worse than imperfection is the the belief that it's perfect. How does one crack that nut? Yayin HaMesameach is not going to work because Yayin HaMesameach will reinforce the problem. What you need is Yayin HaMeshake. You need a breakdown of the situation. You need things to get broken. What you need is things to get broken, things not to work. When things don't work, then it's the beginning of a person opening themselves up to a part where things are pretty good. Well, I wouldn't say thinking. I don't think thinking does the trick here. Yeah, but I'm saying I think the thinking has to be experiential more. One, two, three, four. Four lines from the bottom, Lamad Aleph, the first column, page 61. To explain Yayin Amashakir, he brings the Zoyar. The Zoyar says that Zakoik uh, Shoit, people who are righteous, are fortunate that every day they look at their souls as though this is the day of death. At the surface, it means that they never indulge or become too frivolous because they're always aware of uh, the future consequences. And he wonders, he says, if we're talking about people who are of uh, prominent spiritual space, it would think you would, it would seem that their primary motivation in Avaidas Hashem is not fear of punishment. That basically, Yiras Ha'inish, in other words, Olam Haba, Ganeid, and Gehenim, that's the key. One would think, especially in the world of Zohar, that that is not the primary motivation. And yet it seems that that's what the Zohar is saying about them. What's unique about them is that they always realize that they may face the best in Shalmaila this day or the next day, and therefore their behavior is in a particular fashion. So he says the truth is that the meaning of the Zohar is very different. And his point was that even at Tzadik Gomer, when he goes to Gan Eden, needs to go through some type of tvila, some type of mikvah, a spiritual mikvah, in a, in a river called Nahardinur. And the reason is to remove the attachment 
two experiences in this world because there's no way that he or she will be able to be fully present in Ganeid if they still remember. And what we mean by remember means if they're still attached. If there's strings attached, cords attached emotionally, spiritually to the experiences of the world. Not only that, he says, even within Gan Eden itself, every Rishchidosh, every Shabbos, there's what's called Aliyah Sanashamas. Every Shabbos, there's a journey of the souls. Every Rishchidosh, there's a journey of the souls. Because the souls continuously journey. It's hard for us to even imagine this, but there is tremendous growth, transitions. And for a soul to go from one space to another space, from Ganeidin Atach to Ganeidin Elyon, from Ganeidin Elyon to a higher Ganeidin. Remember, Ganeidin itself is infinite myriads and myriads, really infinite levels. Moshe Rabbeinu and the others are in Ganeidin for 3,000 years and they're not bored in Ganeidin. What do they do all day? Again, it's hard for us to understand. What can people do for 3,000 years? Life here is short, so you cherish it. 70, 80, 90, 120 years. Life there is not short. It's very, very long. So what do you look forward to? You know, here there's a vacation coming. Soon is New Year's, Hanukkah, whatever it is. People always look forward to the next vacation. <laughs> but over there there's no vacation. What's the vacation? But nonetheless, they're not monotonous. They're not bored. Because the Tainuk, the delight of the Ziv HaShchinah, of Torah and of Shchinah, is infinite and there's infinite levels and therefore there's infinite growth. So to get from one space to another space, he says he again has to go to the mikveh. Why? To detach, to forget the hasaga of Ganeidin Atachten or Ganeidin Elyon. In other words, even a high level of Ganeidin will become an obstruction for a higher level of Ganeidin. The perception that you had will become the new barrier. Yesterday's redemption becomes the new exile. Yesterday's freedom becomes the new fence the new thing that, that actually obstructs me because the greatest danger in, in, in freedom is when a person becomes complacent and smug and therefore what was yesterday really a gewaldika breakthrough for today that becomes actually a blockage because the hasaga of yesterday becomes the gullus of today because it doesn't allow me a deeper hasaga. A deeper hasaga means a different modality of thinking, a different level of, of comprehension. The Baal Shem Tov once said that for every question, there's an answer. And for every answer, there's a question. And for that question, there's also an answer. But for that answer, there's also a question. And what that really means is that it depends from which paradigm you're talking about. Every question is an answer if you go to a different space. But if you go to a different space, that question is challenged again. Etc., etc. So therefore, the neshama always needs the tvila in order to be able to make that transition from one spacing and aid to another spacing and aid. Because as we explained, this is not just a gradual transition. I learn a shtikl gemara. I learn another shtikl gemara. I don't have to forget. On the contrary, yesterday's amid is what I build on for today's amid. Right? Yesterday's blot is what I build on. You don't want to forget. But as we explained... When you're dealing with a different style of comprehension, a different model of hasaga, here, yesterday's hasaga could become the greatest obstruction for today's hasaga. I don't know if I should mix this in, but Lahavdil Mark Twain once said, I never allowed my schooling to interfere with my education. Um, uh, sometimes you meet a person, I met somebody not long ago, and they... I was very impressed of their how they think about things. So uh, I said, "You must not have. You must have not gone to yeshiva." 
Because uh, sometimes places that teach you to think also teach you how not to think. You understand? By definition, every yes is a no. So sometimes they teach you how to think, but only think a certain way. And there's literally no other way of thinking. And your whole life, you're just stuck in that space. So sometimes, uh, the Evan Ezra says this about Moshe Rabbeinu, something very interesting. The Evan Ezra in Parsha Shmois asks a question. Why the first Jewish leader, God, providence had it that the first Jewish leader should grow up among Gentiles. You would expect that the first Jewish leader should have known what a Shalom Zacha looks like. He didn't. <laughs> he didn't know what a bris looks like. He didn't know what a pidyan aben looks like. He didn't know what a chasana looks like. He grew up by para. So this man who was supposed to be the first Jewish leader did not grow up in a uh, yeshivish atmosphere <laughs> or a Jewish community. He grew up by para. Devanez says, why? It doesn't make sense. Do you know what he answers? He gives two answers. Well, first he says, Said Hashem. I don't know why God did it that way. That's always the first answer. And then he says, but I'm going to suggest two things. Number one, Jews never respect people that they grow up with. Ein navi bi'iroi. You can't be a prophet in your own city because every yenta tells you, I still remember when you ran around in diapers. So every person would look at Moshe, oh, I remember your bris, you were crying at your bris, your mother couldn't control you. Huh? By him, not that one. Okay, you're up shenish. I still remember you were so cute. Here, let me give you a pinch, Moshe. Let me give you a pinch. You're still cute. He would never be able to do what he has to do. That's how it is by Jews. You grow up with somebody, right? It's always my chaver. Huh? Jews have a special chush in this. You can't be a prophet in your own city. You go to another city, suddenly, oh, you go back to your old friends, you know, you ate sunflower seeds together, relax. But then the Ebenezer gives, that's a very practical, then Ebenezer gives a second reason. This is a very deep reason. He says, there was no way Moshe Rabbeinu would be able to take on the Egyptian empire if he grew up among Jews because they all had a slave mentality. And Moshe had to be a revolutionary. And to be a revolutionary, you have to grow up in aristocracy. You have to be able to think big. And the Jews could not think big because they were so oppressed that even when they thought about redemption, it was like a poor man's redemption. Moshe had to be able to imagine an absolute revolution. By growing up in a palace in royalty, his mindset was a royal mindset. It was expansive. It was uninhibited because he wasn't a slave. Slaves, by definition, grow up with slave mentalities. And you can't help them. Even when they think about prosperity, right? What is prosperity? Prosperity is, they once said, uh, Schnorrer once said, if I would have Rothschild's money, I would build elevators in all the buildings. I won't have to climb up the steps to collect. Typhus, that's how many people live their lives. I'll get Rothschild's money and then I'll build elevators everywhere. Because I can't have another conception. What, how does one get rid of this? This is not an easy thing to get rid of. This is the way you're thinking. Right? So sometimes you learn in certain yeshivas or institutions or communities, they teach you how to think, but only to think this way. And everything you can only judge through this medium. You don't, really don't have the ability for expansiveness and open-mindedness that is not bound by any dogma. Moshe could not be like that because he would never be able to be Moshe Rabbeinu. So that's what Ebenezer says. He had to grow up in Malchus, in royalty. 
The Rambam, by the way, says the same explanation why they stayed in the desert for 40 years. He says it wasn't a punishment. It was actually a very good thing to do. Because when the Meraglim came back, the Rambam says this, when the Rambam came back and said, we can't go into the land because we're all going to die, Hashem told Moshe Rabbeinu, they're still slaves. They don't believe that they can create a future for themselves. They really believe that they're slaves forever. And therefore they're frightened. And therefore they have to spend 40 years in the desert, basically, to develop a, a sense of independence, of autonomy. The Rambam says when you hang out in a desert for 40 years, you learn, <laughs> you, learn how to tough, you learn how to toughen up. It wasn't a punishment. He says only their children who were born in freedom will be able to imagine a life of freedom. Right? So you have a person, the Jewish people have been in Golos for many, many years, for 2,000 years. And uh, we have developed a very deep Golos mentality of how we think about everything, how we think about God, how we think about ourselves, how we think about life, how we think about history. Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky writes, the truth is it comes from a generation earlier. It's a very profound idea. It comes from the Ostrovtzer Rebbe. You heard of the Ostrovtzer? Rabbi Chiel, mayor of Ostrovtzer. One of the great Hasidic masters of Poland. He passed away in 1928. He fasted for 40 years. So the Ostrovtsa writes, he has a Sefer, Meir Enichachamim, what's a Sefer? Meir Enichachamim, I think, yeah. Yeah, I think Meir Enichachamim, he writes, and I saw Sir Yaakov Kamenetsky writes this word in his Emes Leyakov, he has a Pirush. A little different, but the, the, the Teuchen is similar. It says that Yaakov ran away from Esav. When you make a Cheshben of Yaakov's life, there's 14 years missing. So Rashi tells us he went 14 years to learn in the yeshiva of Shem and Ever. Asked Ostrovtsev, what did he learn in the yeshiva of Shem and Ever that he didn't learn by Yitzchak and Avram? Was it a briska derech? What was it? The Telza derech? The briska derech? The Polish derech? The Galiziana derech? The Hungarian derech? What exactly was the derech that he learned by... by uh, by shame and Eved that Yitzchak couldn't give him and Avram couldn't give him. So Zastrovtsa says two words. He had to learn Torah's Hagolos. Meaning, Yaakov knew how to be a Jew in Eretz Yisrael. That's where Yitzchak was. That's where Avram was. He didn't know how do you how are you a Jew outside of Eretz Yisrael. He didn't know. Shame and Eved, they taught him for 14 years how to be a Jew in Golos. It's a different style. Different style. A different Indian. Now, I'm going to borrow their words and say the opposite. We, for 2,000 years, learned Torah Sagolos. We don't know Torah Sagolos. How to be a Jew in a redeemed way. How to be a redeemed Jew, a liberated Jew. How to be a Jew without fear, without obsession, without guilt, huh? without negativity. The Mogan Avram says that Ed of Shabbos, you toyim from the Tafshilim of Shabbos, the Satma, they know how to do it. So even when it comes, as we come to Ikvisit the Meshicha, there's a foretaste of Gehula where there's a certain consciousness of what will Judaism feel like after B.S. Mashiach. There's something they call fog. You know what fog is? Fog is also fear, obsession, guilt. (laughs) 
So there's a Judaism that's lived in fog, in fear, and in obsession, and in guilt. That's very much Teres HaGolos. The relationship with God is a very strenuous one. It's a very difficult one. And it's always based on fear of punishment. It's not based on expansive consciousness. It's not based on experiencing your full potential and your full freedom. It's also looking at the world and seeing it as an evil place. It's looking at other people and seeing everything as evil. In other words, we're always protecting ourselves. Now, there's a reason for that. Jews have not had an easy time. I don't have to elaborate. We all understand. And they did a remarkable job in being Jews and Gullahs. That's why we're all here today. But what happens is the transition from one modality to another modality requires a very deep quantum leap. It requires a person who's not bogged down by the stress that all I could think about in terms of prosperity is to build elevators and buildings so I should be able to have an easier time to go from door to door and collect money. Or as a malama, the teacher told Rothschild that if I have your money, I'll be richer than you because I won't quit being a malama. So I'll have an extra side job. Okay, fine. Gesundheit. So therefore, so therefore, do I say a maizah that was once a, a farmer, a chassid who came to his rebbe and his cow was sick. So uh, he asked for a bracha for the cow because he got milk. So he said, the Ebersh is a health and us is a starbin. The cow should die. It died, tuck. So he had another cow got sick. He came back to him. He says, I want to bless you. This should also have you see us on the shaman. The kachava. So finally he comes to him and he says, I don't understand, you're supposed to help me. <laughs> you're, not supposed to, you're not supposed to destroy me. He says, you have anything left? He says, yeah, I have an old horse, an old cow. <laughs> so he lost everything. So he tells his wife, this is supposed to be my friend, my rebbe, and this. Now he has nothing. Yeah. <laughs> so he starts thinking, how do you make money? How do you start making money? So he starts dreaming up this parnosa, that parnosa. He gets involved in something and he makes a nice, uh, nice mint. So he comes back the next year to his Rebbe and he says, I don't understand, why did you do this? He says, Pashat, I saw as long as your animals are alive, you won't even be challenged to think bigger. All you could think about is that your cow should give a little more milk, that the horse should go a little faster. You had to get rid of everything in order to be able to start thinking, you know, how do I create a life for myself? So we always, this is constantly in life. The yesterday's model, which worked effectively in Ganeidna Ha'elyayim, becomes an obstruction for the perception of Ganeidna Elyon. And not because it was a bad thing. It wasn't, but I'm still attached to that. And I'm attached to it, so that's where I remain, I remain stuck. The, the sign of a true person who, who works on themselves, a person who's sensitive to Ruchnis, to Ein Saif is, they'll never, they'll never uh, uh, become smug in a certain modality. The vision of infinity is so compelling and it's so powerful that they remain truly humble. That's why the greatest spiritual giants are also the most humble people by definition. Not because they don't know their strengths, because they know their strengths. But whenever you have a keen sense of infinity, so the worst enemy is smugness. Because smugness only works when, you don't, when you don't, you're not aware of, of, of the distance. So that's the idea that even the greatest tzaddik making a very subtle transition, which for us wouldn't seem drastic, from one space, from one ganeid to another ganeid, needs to go to a mikveh and fire, and in that, completely, so to speak, lose themselves, 
so they can be recreated in a new open way without the previous walls and barriers that would be the obstruction for the new hasag. And that mikveh, it almost like erases everything. Like, I don't recognize myself. Let me start over again. It's a very, very humbling moment when you don't recognize yourself. Whatever happened to you, you look in the mirror and you just, you don't know who you are. Okay, let's just start from scratch. Here I am, now what do I do with my life? But if you have that moment, it's really a very powerful moment of rebirth. It usually comes through pain in our world. It comes through everything else gets destroyed. We usually don't know how to create this in a positive way because if the car is working, why should you open the hood? (laughs) We only open the hood when the car breaks down. We only go to our depth when it's not working. When the computer is functional, you don't start opening the computer. You just let it go. As long as your life is working for you, you can afford to be superficial. God bless you. It works. When your life stops working for you, then you can't afford to be superficial. You have to go and open the hood and see what's going on. So usually in most cases, it comes from pain, from life disintegrating, and therefore there's nothing left. So I have to revisit everything. The challenge here he's talking about in Gan Eden, it doesn't come from pain. It comes from a positive vision of infinity. That's also part of Tairus HaGulullah. That pain doesn't have to prompt growth. Destruction is not the only prerequisite for renovation. In our world, people who are obsessed with recovery sometimes worship the process of addiction a little too much. And what I mean by that is, it's true that Yerid is Tzayur and it's true that shuva comes only through breakdown, through sins. And it's true that growth comes only through disintegration. But yeah, yes, it is. But we have to be careful not to romanticize, not to romanticize it. That's also part of a gullus mentality that you have to be broken and destroyed in order to discover yourself. That is, it's true in life. It's true with a lot of people. But sometimes people become uh, obsessively uh, obsessed, obsessed with that. It's really a tool. And in, in, in ultimate awareness, hearing an Aden, it's not from being broken. It's from a compelling vision of infinity that allows you not to remain, that, that challenges you not to remain smug and complacent. I just wanted to point that out. So now he comes to explain the Zohar. Okay. So he says as follows. One, two, three, four. Four lines from the bottom. V'zois yasema adam aliboy. Kihine gan Eden hu shenenen meziva shechina. What is Gan Eden? The Gemara says in Brachas Yud Zayin that Tzadikim enjoy the radiance of the Ziv. The Ziv HaShchin is only a Ziv. So it's a radiance, it's a glimmer of the Shechin. In order to go into Gan Eden, which is only Ziv HaShchin, you have to remove the memories of Olam Hazek, because if not, you will not be able to experience Gan Eden. So if you want to cleave to God in this world, through Torah and Tefillah, which is not Ziva Shechina, it's the Shechina itself, for sure you have to be able to go into that mikvah and remove your attachment from everything that's pressing you down in Olam Hazav. The tzaddik looks every day today as though, as though that day he's passing away. What does it mean? Not that he's afraid of punishment. No. He remembers that when the soul leaves, 
the first thing it has to do is what? Remove the koyach hazoyche, remove the memory that attaches it and keeps it bound up to the Olam Az experiences, which don't allow it to be truly free. So every day he imagines that day to go into that same space in order to connect to Hashem through Torah and Tefillah. What is he saying here? What he's saying is that there's no way I can experience even Ziv HaShchina, right, if I'm attached to all of my experiences in Olam Haza. What do I mean by attached? Attached means that the person is bogged down by it, and therefore they will simply not be able to be open to the radiance of the Shechina. So they must have that mikveh, that tefillah, and the hardinu that every neshama goes through, which really reinvents itself. So he says, davening here, or toyre here, is deeper than ganeidin. Ganeidin is ziv hashchina. Toyre, that's Hashem Himself. Tefillah here is a relationship with God Himself. On one hand, Ganeidin is much higher. We say, Because over there you have the Shechina revealed, so there's Hanon. Here it's concealed. On the other hand, the Mishnah says, One hour in this world is greater than the whole Olam Haba. Why? So the Balatanya explains elsewhere, because Olam Haba is Ziv HaShechina. We learned in the Maimah, Sois Tosis, if you remember, Almanas Lekabal Pras. There's the Pras, you want the radiance of God, you want the light. And then there's the Shechina itself. Torah and Tefillah in Olam Hazah, this is a link with the Shechina itself, with Hashem Himself in His Atmos, in His Essence. So He says, if to experience Ziv HaShechina, you can't be attached to other things, and if you are, there's no way you could take your place in Gan Eden, and therefore the Neshama has to go to Fulun Vilan Ardenur. Imagine to have a relationship with God Himself in this world, through Torah and Tefillah. If the person is attached to anything, if their Koyach HaZoycher is there, there's no way they can have a relationship with Hashem. So what does this mean practically? When a person gets up to Davin, when a person gets up to Davin, there's so much going on. Our minds don't stop. People don't stop thinking. You can't even stop if you want to. People don't stop thinking. The expression, you're always thinking. You could never shut off your thought. Try doing it. It'll come back with a vengeance. You can't stop thinking. If you stop thinking, all you'll be doing is thinking about the fact that you're trying to stop to think. Because Machshava always, always is alive. Machshava is always vibrant. And the Machshava attaches us, attaches us to everything. So the Zoyar says there are souls that every day they imagine this is the day they're leaving the world. Not that they're afraid and therefore punishment. No, much deeper idea. They say, I'm now going into an experience of what you would call a death-like experience in the positive sense. And that is... I guess this is a pretty sharp idea. I mean, let me put it from the Baal Shem Tev. The Baal Shem Tev once said that uh, one of the greatest, they asked him, they asked him if there's miracles today. So he said, yeah, the greatest miracle is that I stay alive after davening. That's what the Baal Shem Tev said. Now, for me, that's not a big miracle, I have to say. Maybe for some of you it's a miracle, I'm not sure. What did he mean? What's the miracle that he stays alive after that? What's, why shouldn't he stay alive? Some people will mean they stay alive after the boredom. That's for some people. Or after the rabbi's sermon. Or after the jalapeno herring and the schnapps. By the Kiddush, they stay alive. Fine. But that's not what the Baal Shem Tev meant. 
What did he mean, a miracle that he stays alive after davening? Because actually for him, davening was a dangerous moment. What was the danger of the moment of davening? What was it? There was a Yid, Reb Uri of Strelisk. Ever heard of Reb Uri of Strelisk? One of the great Hasidic masters. They called him the Sadaf. Why they call him the Sadaf? So the, the Maise is that every day by davening, it looked like he was burnt up in a Sreifa. And the fact that he was alive was a Psashtikal Chiddush. The Svasemis writes that the Yid HaKadosh, the Yid HaKadosh, why they call him the Yid HaKadosh? He says, because every day he went through a process similar to a convert who becomes from a non-Jew a Jew. Every day he became, the, he went through that process. He became a, a Jew today. So they called him every day. That was his name, a Jew. Just like a convert. You say, oh, here's a Jew because he just became a Jew. He just became a Jew today. Life is full of things going on, right? If you open up your phone, you probably have a lot of text this morning. You already have... 20 emails to deal with, there's appointments, there's issues, there's, that's good things. Then there's challenges and struggles and problems and so forth. But then there's a fascinating thing, and that is somebody who, fascinating, tragic, somebody who's in the middle of life and doing everything and active and, and has all the emails like everybody else and has all the responsibilities like everybody else, and then something happens and they pass. They pass. And what happens to all the pressures and then people come to the come to the funeral, and often a reflection is, like just in an instant, in an instant, hundreds and hundreds of responsibilities that stress us out. In this person's case, it's like all gone. Person is not here. It's all gone. It's all over. And uh, they're not in this world anymore. And like in that instant, if somebody texts you and says you're coming, and you don't answer within ten minutes, right? They start doubting the relationship. If you don't answer within an hour, you're like, may not be a friend anymore. If you don't answer within a few hours, you may be an enemy. If you don't answer an email within a few days, you're like really, really detached from society. And we live in that world, and and I guess you have to live to some degree in that world. That's the degree of of pressures and responsibilities and issues and so forth. Once the neshama, but that's really only a little journey. The neshama leaves... And all those knots, all those connections, all those relationships just dissolve. They're just not there. They're not there. So the Zohar says that when a person goes into a mode of Torah and Tefillah, they have to really be able to go into a mode as though the Neshama left the world that day. In other words, nothing, nothing, nothing exists outside of my relationship with God. Nothing. And that's really the mindfulness that he's talking about. It's a mindfulness where a person could go into a space and say, not chas v'shalom that I'm dead and I should die, God forbid. But it means I should be able to be in a relationship that's not bogged down and not encumbered and not distracted by any strings attached to anything. Just like the neshama, when it leaves the world. It's obviously all the cords get disconnected, and it's a sad thing for us that all the cords get disconnected. How do you know that it doesn't do with pressure there? How are we so clear with that? Well, that's what he talks about the mikveh. That's, that's what the Zoyar means. That even when the neshama detaches itself, it's still not enough. Even when it's dead and therefore doesn't have to text back. <laughs> I can't come to the bar mitzvah because I have a headache. <laughs> or because the, you know, the, the shamash nebe sakvaris won't let. Even without that, 
I don't mean to be humorous. I know uh, <laughs> I, about this. It's a tragic reality, but I, I mean the concept that he's bringing out. It's, it's, a, it's a profound concept. Even that's not enough. Why? Because there's still the memories. So it has to go to the mikveh. In the mikveh, in the Hardinur, he says, Koyach is removed. Now again, Koyach doesn't mean that you erase the data so that this Neshama doesn't know that it was born. Of course not. That's not the Tekavana. Neshama has a wife, and Neshama has children, Neshama has grandchildren, Neshama has great-grandchildren, and Neshama is... No, it's not... It lets go. It's attached in a way of... Uh, of, of choosing to be attached in a way of love, not allowing distractions so that you can't be in a relationship. That's a different type of uh, connection. So that's what the Zoya means, that the tzaddik every day lives that way. And the Balatanya says, really, it has to be even more than when the Neshama dies. You know why? That's his, that's, <laughs> that's his touch. Because in Ganeidin, you only get Ziv HaShchina. Here is the Shechina itself. If a Ziva Shechina these things distract, for the Shechina itself, you mamish have to be able to let go. So can a person really, really let go of everything? Now it's very scary to let go of things, because that's the only way we know ourselves. If I don't have all these things, who am I? But this is the mode that he talks about when you go into davening, when you go into Torah. It's a different mode Literally all the cords to everything, but the relationship right now with Hashem is severed. So, so that's the real question. Can a person even imagine stepping into such a relationship? And I would say that if this exists with Hashem, a certain element of it exists in relationships with people who are all created in the image of God. Can I enter into a relationship with absolutely no no attachments to anything? Can I even do that? Do you even know how to do that? Does anybody even know how to do that? I'm not only talking about putting away the iPhone. That's, that's beyond. But even emotionally and mentally, to really be able to say, you know, I know nothing. I'm not attached to anything. I don't recognize myself. Which is a concept of a, a a spiritually near-death experience to the point that he says, if this was it, what's left? What's left? To you. If the Jews in Egypt were born as slaves, would, would they be able to change? Or, or because they had well, it said they had to be 40 years and they had to have a Moshe Rabbeinu. So you can be changed. So you but you have to be open to that. The first thing you have to know is that you're in Egypt. <laughs> That's the first thing you have to know. If you think you're in Gan, if you think you're in Ganadin and you're in Gehenim, then you're not changing, right? If you think you're in Geula and you're in Golos, then you're not changing. The prerequisite for Geula is always knowing that you're in Golos. I told you, it's it's going to the mikveh, so to speak, and emerging, and the person that was there before is not the person that's there after, because he died in the middle. I don't mean physically, but rebirth. Rebirth in the sense of uh, the guy goes in, comes out, and he's a Jew. What happened? <laughs> it's a joke. He, he's a Jew, right? The Jew himself can can experience that process. That he's now a person who is uh, uh, literally open to a relationship from a place of absolute freshness, absolute creativity. 
absolute uh, dynamic uh, pulsating life. But I'll tell you, I think the hardest thing is even for a person to understand that there's such a possibility and to understand how far they are from that possibility if they never understand that there's such a possibility. It's like we are so uh, programmed. We just go into everything with everything. And we just bring that into everything. We bring everything into everything. We're not... Uh, I once heard from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs something very moving. You know, the chief rabbi of... Uh, the former chief rabbi of Britain. It was a very interesting percept- per insight I heard from him. He said he went in as a student in 1968, in the middle of the night, he went to visit the Lubavitcher Rebbe. He said he was sitting in his room and uh, he could not put his finger on what he appreciated so much. And he said, and then at some point he realized that what was so valuable about the meeting for him, it changed his life. I mean, it took him from one space, it put him literally on his course of where he is today, you know. He's a, a rabbi's rabbi and a teacher, a writer, an author, in terms of Yiddishkeit. So he said what, what affected him so deeply was that at some point he realized that the Rebbe was not present in the conversation. What do I mean by not present? Not like we would say not present. He was not present. To quote him, he said, he allowed himself to be nullified and to become a mirror so that I should be able to see myself by talking to him. That's what he said. In other words, if you sit down with me, you sit down with somebody, there's always, I want to make an impression on you, you want to make an impression on me. And even if uh, this person you're coming to is, is a great leader and a great rabbi and a great, as you say, a great whatever, but he's still a human being. You know, you ask me a question, I have the answers, or, or whatever it is. I'm a nice guy, or I'm a, I'm a brilliant guy, or I'm a balchesed. It's always give and take, and that's fine. That's, that's human life. Is it possible that you come into my room and I tell myself, you know what, for the next hour, I don't have to be here. It's fine. I really don't have to be here. All what I want to do is I want to allow you to be here. I'll be the mirror, and I'll simply allow you to look at me and see yourself, but see yourself in a different way. I will completely suspend my need for, uh, 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 what's the word? Uh, no, for, uh, no, no, no. <laughs> my need for, uh, to assert myself, to assert myself into this relationship. And really be able to be completely in a state of what we call ayin, or what you call bittel, to be in a state of ayin, which will allow you to be able to see in me your mirror. In other words, my entire existence now will be a conduit to try to help you reach whatever you have to reach. So first of all, a person has to be very comfortable with himself to be able to do that. It's obvious. You have to have a lot of confidence and a lot of courage to really be able to step aside. And it's like there's really nothing else. But in addition to that, it's even that ability to be able to be in that space where I could now say, you know, I'm not here. I'm really not here. The I that is here is a different I. It's completely an I that is just a conduit for you. Is this helpful for you or for the other person? Well, for the other person, it's not just helpful. For the other person, it allows him to reinvent himself, to see himself in an extraordinary way. But for yourself... For yourself, it's, uh, I mean, in helpful and selfish terms, it's not helpful in selfish terms, but I think it's like, 
this what we're talking about, the rebirth? I'm giving an example, I think. I think for a person, it's helpful in the sense that... Uh, it helps him repair the world, number one, and I think it also uh, allows him to tap into his true self in a very deep way. Because the true self is not defined by anything. That's the truth. On a lower scale. Let me finish with this. Huh? The Pasuk says, Ki b'tselem elikim sa'adam, right? You're created in God's image. And uh, everyone asks that Hashem doesn't have an image. What does it mean you're created in Hashem's image? So one of the explanations is that uh, that's exactly the point. <laughs> Hashem doesn't have an image. So to be created in Hashem's image means that you don't have an image. You choose your image. You always choose your image. But that doesn't seem to make sense. We all have an image. There's my parents, there's my family, there's how I grow up, there's my personality. Who, who doesn't have an image? We have issues, we have blessings, we have vices. But the truth is, that's not the case. means Hashem doesn't have an image. You don't have an image. You choose your image at every moment, and you're never fixed by it. You choose your image. You choose your connections. You choose your attachments. And those attachments are always deeper than forced attachments. Because they're attachments that you choose, and therefore you bring your entire self into it. It's not attachments that are forced upon you, and therefore you're just a victim of them. So when you choose those attachments, you choose those relationships, the relationship is so much deeper. Because you're choosing your image. But for that, I have to be able to be comfortable with not having an image and not being attached to any particular image whatsoever. So his argument here is that the Zayar is saying that if in Ganeidin you have to do this, and there's no way you're experiencing Ganeidin, there's no way you can experience Torah, there's no way you can experience Tefillah without doing this. There's no way I can experience Torah and Tefillah without literally letting go of everything. That means that the greatest contradiction to davening is, the greatest contradicting to davening is coming into a davening from a space of self rather than from a space of nothingness. I have to step into davening from a place where literally I'm ready to completely reinvent myself and just face God as a one-week-old child, naked, I mean psychologically, the Nevi'im also did it physically, but um, we're not advocating that at the moment. Uh, psychologically, emotionally, completely raw, and say, uh, let's talk. <laughs> okay. Levi Yitzhak of Baditchev once said that uh, if they brought a tzitzah into Ganeiden, if they brought a tzitzah into Ganeiden, the whole Ganeiden would explode. <laughs> the whole place would be burnt down. That's what he said. What we would call today, it would be nuked. It would be uh, demolished. Why? He said the holiness that exists in tzitzahs and a mitzvah is so powerful that nobody would be able to remain intact. It would completely expire, like the voltage would be too overwhelming for the, for the wiring. That's what the Leitzig Abadichev said. This is reflective of the principle that he intimates here, and that is, we wear tzitzis and nobody is nuked. Nobody, people don't even get that excited. I'm not going to say nobody, but uh, people don't even get that excited. 
because that's really the difference between our world and the world of Ganeidin. The world of Ganeidin is a world of clarity. Everything is clear. There's no distortions whatsoever. To live in Ganeidin means to live in a space of no distortions. By Lamhaba, the Rambam says, doesn't mean a world that is a future world. The Rambam says in Hilchas Tshuva, Elam Haba is, 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 is here today. It's called Elam Haba not because it's going to be created in the future. It's the world that the reality that people usually experience after they pass on. But the, the world is is a world. Ganeiden is, where do people think Ganeiden is? The Gemara says in Baba Basra, Elam Chatir Bechayecha, that Ha'avais lived in this world, what does that mean? What does mean they lived in Elam Haba in this world? It's just a paradigm. The way you the way you experience life, Ganeidin is a world with complete clarity. There's no distortions whatsoever. Everything that is is. What do I mean? Everything that is is. In this world, everything that is is not. It's a world of delusion, or a world of distortion, or a world of uh, misconception on, on so many different levels. In Ganeidin, that doesn't exist. So when there's kedusha in Ganeidin, they're aware of it. So the Ritzvah said that Sitzah would come and they wouldn't be able to deal with the Gedush. This world, its dysfunction is also its virtue because it's a world of concealment. So therefore we're capable of having much more in this world than in Elam Haba because we could, we, could, we could absorb things without processing them. In Ganeidin, whatever you absorb, you have to process on every level. It, it's very clear what's happening. If that's the case, how could you get more grenade than a, le- like more, a higher level than a higher level? Infinite. That's the idea. No, but if everything is perfectly clear, you can see everything at the same time, there's no more or less. No, but even in, in truth, there's infinity. There's no distortion, there's no lie, but even in truth, there's, there's infinity. You know, just like in learning Torah, there's one level, a deeper level. Each one is true. It's not like it's distorted. A, a child learns a Pasuk Chumash, they got it. There's a deeper level, a deeper level, a deeper level. But that's because of a distortion. When you take away the distortion, it should all be one level. No, no. Distortion, what I mean is the concept of a sheker, of, 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 of something that, that substitutes reality. There's no substitute for reality. But reality itself is, is so multidimensional, it's ain't safe. So therefore, he says here that in this world... It's not nen meziv hashchina. In this world, he says, it's nenin from the it's the shchina itself. So therefore, Rabbi Yitzchak Baditchev says, you bring a tzitz into Ganeidin over there, the ziv hashchina, and the tzitz is deeper than ziv hashchina. So Ganeidin can't deal with it. But in Olam Haza, you have a tzitz which is deeper than the ziv hashchina. But yet, we don't even feel it as a ziv, never mind as a shchina. So therefore, in this world, you can have everything, but not necessarily experience it. So you're in a relationship with something absolutely powerful, but one cannot, one cannot experience it. So he says, to experience ziv hashchina, to be in a relationship with ziv hashchina, one cannot be connected and bogged down and attached, and they have to be able to let go of all other attachments to be able to fully be in that relationship. And if not, as he puts it, the Neshama will never be able to settle into its place in Gan Eden. It will never be able to own that place. It's never really there. You're there, but you're not there. That's even as he says, When a Jew is going to learn Torah, the type of letting go that is necessary in order to fully 
suck the marrow out of the moment and seize the full experience and full opportunity of what is available right there at that moment in Torah or Tefillah, as he puts it, is even deeper than Gan Eden. Because even for Ziva Shechini you need this. Imagine when the relationship is with Hashem in His essence, Mamish, which is expressed in Torah and mitzvahs in Olam Hazem. And that's what the Zohar means, that there are people that every day they see it as the day of passing. It doesn't mean that they're afraid their Chalil are going to die that day. That's not the focus here. The focus here in the Zohar is that they can real apply that consciousness and that readiness and that willingness to be able to be fully, fully present in a way that for the person nothing else exists but the relationship right now with God, with Hashem. Did anybody ever experience this when they davened? Rabbi Litzman, no? Okay. So he wants us, each time we do any mitzvah, each time we go to davening to, to start this whole... Pro- I mean, he wants, I'm saying is, the suggestion is, the ideal is that every day we, rem- we go through this process of a tefillah. Every davening, every time we come to shul, every time we pick up an esri, every time we make a bracha. Is that the ideal? I think you're both asking the same thing, aren't you? <laughs> I want to tell you a story from Talmud Yerushalmi, Masechta Peya Peyrek Ches. It's a story. It's a Gemara in Yerushalmi, it's a clear Gemara. Tell me what you think about the story and how what would happen to you. How would you look at it if it happened to you? It's a Gemara in Yerushalmi, a clear Gemara. Rabbi Yochanan and Rish Lakish went to bathe. Where? The hot springs of Tveria. Rabbi Yochanan and Rish Lakish were brothers-in-law. They were considered the G'dayli Hadar. They lived in the 3rd century after the Common Era in Eretz Yisrael. Rabbi Yochanan is the editor of the whole Talmud Yerushalmi. He's the first generation of Amirayim, like the transition of Tanoyim Amirayim. He brings in Rish Lakish, the whole famous story of Masech Tavab Metziah. He was, uh, you know... He was a gangster, a gladiator, and he brings him in. And together they really, uh, anybody learns Gemara, Birchen and Rishlokish are the two characters that pervade, you know, much of Shas. In the hot springs of Tveria, you have natural hot springs that are healthy, and they were always known as healthy until today. People go often. You ever went to Chami Tveria? It's an interesting place. Birchen and Rishlokish, the Gemara says in Yerushalmi, they both go to bathe there. As they're uh, entering the place, so today we're used to, by the Kaisel, there's always somebody collecting money. Not one person, usually a few dozen people. The Gemara says, in front of the Chamitveria, there was what today you would call, uh, what do we call them today? A fundraiser. Uh, yeah, some people have other names for them. Whatever it is, somebody collecting money. He turns to the Biochen and Shlokish, and he says, I need money. I'm a poor man, please give me money. The Birch and Shlokish say, we're going in to bathe, we're going into the mikveh, whatever, we're going into Chamitveria, and when we go out, we'll give you. They go in. How long are they there? The Gemara doesn't say. Could be they were there a whole day, could be they were there a few hours, could be they were there a short time, I don't know. <laughs> they come out. The man is dead. He's on the floor, he's dead. They realized, they look, he died from uh, emaciation, starvation. So it seemed. 
first half of the story. Now, I want to know what most people sitting in this room would feel when you see that moment. The guy asked you for money. You said, I'll give you soon. I'm in a rush, whatever the excuse was. It's under my clothes. Okay, whatever. You have a credit. Huh? And we're wearing their pants, probably. I mean, they're already going into the mikvah. Okay, it was in the outside. I don't know exactly. Okay, whatever. And uh, the guy is dead. The guy is dead. He wanted to buy uh, water or orange juice. He's dead. What would be the natural feeling of a person? What's the word that comes? Guilt. Guilt. How long would you be in therapy for this? That you murdered somebody indirectly, but you killed somebody? How long do you think? The rest of the life. <laughs> half an okay. hour. Half, half an hour a day. <laughs> no, half an hour. Okay, that's it. If at all. and Rishlokish turn to each other. The Gemara says, and one says to the other, we didn't have the schus to be here for him during his lifetime. At least let us have the schus to be there for him during his death. He needs a lot of things now. He needs a tvila, he needs tachrichim, he needs a levaya, he needs a burial place, he needs a matzeva. He needs all these things. Somebody to say, uh, Kaddish, I mean, I would add. Let's have the schus to be there for him in his death. So they take the body and they start the process. The mikveh, bathing, washing, mikveh, kvura, everything. They take responsibility. As they're removing the clothes to be able to uh, cleanse the body, they find in the bosom a whole bag of golden coins. In other words, the guy had a lot, a lot. The guy had a lot, a lot of money. He had a machala. It's called uh, some people. They can't fagin zichalein, right? It's a machala. There's a name for it. What's the name for it? Uh, it's a, st- a level of stinginess to the point of death. That's the mice. That's the end of the story. That's the end of the story. I want you to think about the story for a moment. How many people would respond like Rabbi Yechenon and Rishlokish when they saw that? The natural response is, oh my God, I can't believe this. I can't believe this. I just killed somebody. I pushed it, killed somebody. This guy is dead. And you live with that. If you're Jewish, what do they say? The definition of a Jew is that if you don't feel guilty, you blame yourself. <laughs> so if you don't feel guilty, you're even more guilty. You're even more guilty. You're such a Russia that you killed somebody you don't even feel guilty. You get obsessed about the fact that you're not obsessed. Right? In fact, many obsessions of people are about the fact that they're not obsessed. <laughs> they're not feeling guilty enough. And you could spend your whole life on the couch trying to deal with what a horrible person you are and, and the psychoanalyst will help you figure out where your narcissism comes from probably from your mother and your grandmother, from Chava and the snake, and that's why you're so selfish, and that's why you can't see enough. V'chuli, 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 v'chuli. Shut. Reb Reichen and tell me if their response doesn't seem quite callous. The guy is dead, not a word. Callous, uh... Gleich giltig. Now you understand? Okay. Huh? Such apathy? Not a word. Tshuva, I can't believe it. God forgive us for it. Not a word. No, no, no. Next. It's almost like the Hever Kaddish in Yerushalayim. You ever watch them in action? No, 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 no. Yoshe Vuvas ven. That's it. 
Okay, we'll, we'll do a Levaya, Shai. You, you just killed a guy. They don't know yet that uh, he killed himself. Okay, that's the next stage of the story. But I'm trying to understand their approach. Not a word about what they did. Only about what they have to do right now. Now these are not regular, even regular people who would be surprising. Rabbi Yechen and Rishlokesh were literally the spiritual giants of a generation. Rabbi Yechenon is considered of, or one of the literally one of the greatest Jews of that day. The way the Chazal speak about him. He himself had lost. And he himself knew what losses in the famous uh, Gemara and Brachas. Ten children, Dain, Dain, Dain Garmei. What, what's, the, what's, the, what's the Gemara saying here? The Gemara is saying here, I have no other way of saying it, it's telling us about the concept of living in the present moment in the most extreme way, not being bogged down by any experience that does not allow you to fulfill what God, <coughs> what Hashem wants from you at this very moment. Meaning, do they have to do tshuva for what they did? Of course. Would have they done tshuva for what they did? I'm sure. For a year, for five years, for 20 years, maybe for their whole life. I don't know. Lepoil, they figured something out because they saw what happened. That's not the issue. What they're saying is, one second, we could sit down now and go to therapy and talk about how horrible we are. But this person also is dead. He needs a levaya, he needs kvuda, he needs tachrichim, he needs tara. So it's, 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 it sounds saintly to go into the world of guilt and talk about how bad we are. But it's abandoning the calling, the destiny, the shlichus, and the opportunity of this moment right now. Right now, we are called to help this person reach a burial. That's also a significant thing. Yes, it doesn't whitewash killing somebody and then making him, uh, right, they used to say, uh, uh, the person who killed both of his parents, and in the court he said, Are you sure you murdered your father and mother? Of course you're a yasem, Habrachmanas. It's not to whitewash something and say, I'm going to do a nice kvura. Father always told me that the communists, their brilliance was Stalin, Lenin, they could kill you, and then they made a state funeral. They knew how to make funerals. It was unbelievable. That's what the, that was their genius. It's not whitewashing what has to be fixed. And, and such a thing like Shvich Isdam, even Beshoigig. It was Beshoigig, obviously, they weren't trying to kill him. It, was, it wasn't an union of Mazet. But still, Shvich Isdam and Beshoigig is no small thing. You caused, you caused indirectly the death of somebody. But the Vart is, where the Rechner Shlakish is, there's a difference between guilt and a relationship with God. And the two are usually opposite. The two are not usually opposite. They sound similar. The more guilty, the more horrible you feel, the more holy you are. It's the other way around. Because the more guilty and horrible you feel, the less you could be connected to what God wants from you right now. Because what you're busy is saying, you're, you're nothing, you're a loser, you denigrate yourself, you're not in touch with what life calls of you, of the relationship with life right now. The world was created right now. Huh? At this stage of the game, somebody asked me for money because they want a drink, and I didn't give it to them. Well, what? How would you feel about it? I don't know. You had this experience a few weeks ago, right? And you're still feeling it, and you didn't kill the person. You know that very well. So you're asking about this? No, I understand, but 
now when you're explaining it, who says they even thought about tshuva? They were so close to God. It was not their... For sure. Being close to God means you think about tshuva. Of course you think about tshuva. If you insult, because you have to do tshuva. What do you mean? A normal person, you call that denial. Huh? A normal person, you call that denial. He's denying the fact, the, the effect on him of what he did. Of course. I'm distinguishing, right? I'm distinguishing. It's not an act of repression of denial. It's an act of right now he died. They can't they can't call out Sola and bring him to life. The guy is dead. So what do I do? Do I now get obsessed with me and how horrible I am, or this person needs to be buried? It's not a. It's, there's something. There's a calling. Do I have to fix things? Of course, I have to fix things. There's a certain emotional depth here that is very, very profound. There's a spiritual genius here. Now, what happens in life when you do this? You know what happens when you do this? In most cases, you figure out (laughs) that you didn't kill the person. That's what happens. Paradoxically, when you don't do this, when you live in the past, not in the now, your whole life, you are the murderer. When you have the courage to say, now, there's something called now, Paradoxically, you figure out that this guy had a lot of gold. He never had a machlam. It's a sad story. But I did not murder him. I really did not kill him. He did not starve or die from dehydration because of me. It doesn't take away from the tragedy. But it's a whole different paradigm. Rabbi Yechner and Shlokish may have learned a lesson and said, you know, if somebody asks you for tzedakah, you should give him. There's a whole story of Nochem Mishgamazu, etc. But... Uh, but this is a concept in Avodah Hashem that is one of the Yisoydas that the Baal Shem Tev and the Baal Hatanya used to talk about a lot. This Nekuda, that life is always about the relationship that is happening right now at this moment. And if I'm stuck in the past or in the future, in terms of guilt, anxiety, negativity and so forth, what it does is, it's not Pshat, I'm a holier person. It deprives me from my holiness. It takes me away from who I am right now, and it takes me away from the energy that's coming into me from Hashem at this moment. There's a time for tshuva. There is a t- tshuva is a, is, a, is a big thing, but there's a time for it. There's a time for it. And when suddenly in the middle of the day, or in the middle of davening, in the middle of learning, all I'm experiencing is what a bad person I am, because I did that, I did that, that's the Yetzirah. What's Pshadah's the Yetzirah? It's trying to take the person and put him into a state where he should become paralyzed, where he should become stagnated, and usually what that will lead is to more sin, not less sin. And the reason it will lead to more sin is because whenever a person is living with anxiety, they look for ways to numb their pain. And any way that numbs it, they're prone to do it. Besides that, the more depression, the more you feel valueless. And the more you feel valueless, the less you're motivated to do anything productive with your life. So instead of bringing a person to tshuva, it brings them away from tshuva. Real tshuva means, number one, there's a time and a place for it. Number two, it's the conviction that God forgives. And when He forgives, He forgives. It's over. It's done. It's done. He forgave you. Baruch Hashem Chanan means He forgives. Trust Him. He forgives. Done. Over. I said before, Slichas, Reb Simcha Binim of said, right after Yom Kippur, the first tefillah is Mairev. How do you open up Mairev? V'hu rachum yechaper oven. And then you come to Shemun Esther, Slach lono avinu ki Is this a joke? 
a whole Yom Kippur, al chet, al chet, al chet, al chet, or shamnum. You finish Ne'ila, L'shona Ba'abir How many sins that people do between Ne'ila and Ma'irev? Even the greatest Bali Lashon Harer, Echilas, Ganovim, Meshukotzim, Etuavim, or all the nice titles, don't sin between Ne'ila and Ruhurachim. What do they do? They're sitting in Shul with a talus and a kittle, they're starving. They're not in the mood of talking even. They just want to go home to eat. What, what, what's Ruhurachim, Echaperachim, what, Anaya Veda we did? I thought we're done. Slachlanu. So you know what the Pesach Bindam said something very profound. He says, Slachlanu avinu ki because we don't believe that we were forgiven. The sin of Metzah Yim Kippur is that you're still busy. You're still busy. He says, that's the sin. The sin is you don't believe you were forgiven. You, that has nothing to do with tshuva. That has to do with a Yitzhahara that wants to make you bogged down by everything forever. Forever. It doesn't mean I didn't make mistakes. I made mistakes. So I'm going to work on them. I'll repair them. But it doesn't mean I am a mistake. Well, how did I become a mistake? I made a mistake. I made a mistake. Put it in context and fix it. You have so much good in it. You have so much beauty. You have a soul in you. Rabbi and Rishlakish understood what they call today living with the now. What's the... What's the, the presence. Mindfulness. Mindfulness. Engagement. Complete presence. Complete presence physically, emotionally, very hard, mentally... <laughs> Mentally, even harder, complete presence. Our thoughts are everywhere but here. So the Balatanya is saying here that the Zoyar is introducing the concept that when a person gets up to Torah and Tefillah, it should be able, a person should understand that the level of presence that is necessary to be fully in the relationship is one that is similar and even should be stronger than what the Neshama needs to go through in order to be able to be present in Gan Eden. And of course you understand that this is a real deep interpretation of what Gehenim really is. This whole Tvila bin Ahar Dinur, right, is also between Gan Eden and Gan Eden, but it's also, it's the Gehenim that goes before Gan Eden. What is really Gehenim? Gehenim is really the pain that comes from letting go. It's very hard because this is who I am. Gehenim really means the ability that I could cleanse myself, I can allow myself to be cleansed and taken away from all these things that I'm so attached to, which I didn't know I could be taken away from. I thought that is me. But that doesn't allow me to be present in anything because I'm so bogged down by it. I'm like attached with a million wires to things. But to be in Ganadin means you're in the presence of God. Whenever you're in the presence of God, it's a full relationship. A full relationship means that I'm completely present. Somebody after the Shia told me yesterday that uh, an experience that they had, that uh, they said to me this. It was, it was very interesting to hear. I'm not sure I understand it exactly, but this is, I'll, I'll just quote what the person told me. The person said to me that uh, if, uh, if you tell me that two, you, you tell me two plus two, you tell me two plus two, and I'm listening to you, and what I right away think is, what do I think? Four. So the person told me, that means I lost you. I'm not with you anymore. I went somewhere else. I went to my own space. I'm not with you on your journey. But when you say two plus two, and all I'm thinking is two plus two. I just heard this person say two plus two. And I will not go away from there. So now I'm with you on your journey. I'm not going somewhere else. The other case, I went off to my own space. I already figured you out. I already took you where I wanted to take you. Because I, I'm not ready to be here with you where you are. Um, I thought that was very, uh, very interesting insight. 
which a lot of people wouldn't like, what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> two plus two is four. I don't know what you want. I thought four. I didn't think four. Okay. I don't know in numbers if it works so much. This is how the person conveyed it. But I think the concept is, could you just be with me where I am? Not anywhere else. There's no destination. That's Maybe we'll reach a destination, maybe not. Don't figure it out. Don't close up the pieces. Don't turn it into an equation and don't give a solution. And don't just put it in a box and put it into one of the files in your in your brain, one of the uh, sectillion files. I don't know how many files people have in their brains. But for between the 50, uh, 50 uh, trillion cells, there's a lot of files over there. Just uh, to be fully, fully here. It takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of humility. Takes also a lot of confidence. It takes also a lot of uh, a lot of inner work. But he says, when it comes to Torah and Tefillah, you don't have the Ziv Hashem. You have Hashem Himself. So anything else really doesn't allow for the relationship to be what it is freely. To be able to let go of everything and just say, "I'm with you right now in a complete oneness, without anything else but that oneness." It's not just guilt, as in the case of Rabbi Yochanan Reish Lakish. For example, the whole the, in the parsha now with the Akedah. The Avram said only afterwards, The point is, the emotional restraint that he had, it was not there. I, that was going to be in its due place. Like Rabbi Yochum Mishlokish, they would do that Shuba later, he was going to have his tithes to Rosh Hashanah later. But the whole thing was at that moment. Right. Right. And that was not guilt, that was Stam. Uh, Rav Zevin writes, Rav Shlomo Yosef Zevin has a sefer called Ishim Veshittas. It's a brilliant book. He explains the personalities and the ways of halachic thinking of the Gedolim of the last generation. So he has there, a, when Abchayim Brisker, Abchayim Soloveitchik, he has there a story. I haven't seen him in another place, but Rav Zevin was, Yechaylem Lismech Alav. So he says that a chassid once saw Abchayim Brisker. I'm going to quote the Maisa, the way it's written there. And he says, Vos is this, is Mataych Litvakes, Alt dafte Fashtein. Alt dafte Fashtein. The Ebersh Tosh Gezok, Tosh Gezok, Vos Vilter. He says, what's with you, literally, he tells Reb Chaim, what's with you, everything you have to understand, dissect and analyze, and what's together, what he wants, what he doesn't want, what? Well, what's supposed to? God said, do what he says, stop with this. So Chaim Briske said, the Yid is gerecht. He says, the Yid is gerecht, but let me give you a Hagdara. <laughs> let me explain to you the Vart. So he said this Vart, he says, by the Akedah, yeah, it says, Hashem tested Avram Avinu, Okay. So he goes and he takes his child. And then Hashem says, Altishlach Yadcha. Don't do it. Take him down. Don't take him down. So what happens now? Avram tells Hashem, I don't understand you. Yesterday you said, Today you tell me, slaughter him. And then, t- and then, uh, Years ago, you told me Yitzchak Halachazara. Yesterday, you told me slaughter him, and today, you tell me take him down. What's going on? Hashem said, "I didn't change my dibur." I said, right? achte." You took him up, take him down. So Chaim said, "When should have Avram asked the Shaila? <laughs> Not by stage three, by stage two, by the contradiction. Why stage three? Stage three is the good. God said, save. Stage two is the Shaila." Chaim's question. He's like, as long as the snake I don't have questions. I have no issue. As long as the snake I don't have a problem. It's not my space. I'm not God's computer programmer. 
When I saw that he brought in a third Pasuk, ah, now he wants me. Now he wants me to figure it out. What do you bring in a third Pasuk? You want me to live with paradox? I'm good. He says, that Chassid is right. I'm fine. You brought in a Kosov Ashlishi? Ah, Now you want me. As long as God is contradicting himself with Avram, I have no issue. But now there's a Psakos of Ashlishi. Now you want me to take him down. One saying, there's a pattern here, a rhythm. So you don't want him dead. So now Avram started to ask. So Hashem Taka clarified to him. So it's Rabchaim Zavart. Zavart. So there is, in other words, I think, maybe on a more spiritual level, he was talking more on a, you know, alumnus level, but I think it's that concept of there's a moment that calls for uh, complete uh, uh, creativity where the person ought to be creative and, and understand. There's that moment. And, and limud ha only happens through that. Limud ha is not is not an act of absolute surrender. But nonetheless, there are the moments or the prerequisite of Torah, the prerequisite of tefillah, when it's just uh, intimacy with what is, not intimacy with anything else but what is. That's what you meant, I assume, yeah? So... So yes. I, see, you, you know, yes. What does it look like to serve Hashem without guilt? That's a wonderful question. Some people say to become secular. That's what it looks like. That's what a lot of people have told me. <laughs> That's the only way. That's the real question. Is there an alternative for it? Very often we believe there's no alternative. In other words, the only thing that can motivate is really guilt. That's what works, or doesn't, but it looks like it works. Otherwise, you feel like a reformed Jew. <laughs> no, that's, that's their, that's their shit. They come in and It's like, you know, it's like, it's all on my terms. But I think it's really the other way around. I think that when one could actually liberate themselves from guilt, you see, the premise of all of this is, maybe it should, it always has to be emphasized, that people are not bad. <laughs> I think that's like the key premise to everything. We often take for granted that we're guilty till proven innocent. We have adopted original sin in many ways. The Christian idea of original sin is basically, you'll have it often in yeshivas, you see. The bacha comes in, we assume the worst. <coughs> if after six months you prove yourself, <laughs> then, ah, the And that's really a distortion of Yiddishkeit. It's the other way around. Every person, as he doesn't stop saying it, is a is a piece of God. You don't need guilt to have a relationship with yourself. You need guilt to have a relationship with that which crushes you. You need guilt to have a relationship with something that is not you, that destroys you, and therefore the only thing that can prompt me to do it is guilt. When it's something I'm having a relationship with, with truth both in terms of truth, of my truth, and not only my truth, truth with a capital T, the truth, then it's the most freeing experience. It's the most liberating experience. On the contrary, I think guilt diminishes the experience because all guilt does is it turns God into this bad father or horrible principle. It basically takes a uh, infinitely romantic experiences, experience and reduces it 
to a very, very small experience, a very, very narrow experience. So what happens when a person doesn't operate from a place of guilt? I think what happens is, not that, oh, everybody's just going to go wild and do horrible, horrible things and, uh, and be deprived of any duty and any responsibility. I think what you allow people to do is, you allow them actually to connect to Hashem from their core space, which is really free. It's very free. And that relationship becomes all-encompassing and becomes a source of celebration. Now, I should clarify. If somebody is holding by doing something really not moral, and the only thing that could stop them is guilt, good. <laughs> you know, good. In other words, it's better than doing it. If, if the only thing I can get myself to engage in to stop, I don't know, doing something, and it's guilt, okay. But once you did it, let's say post. Post-sinning. Oh. So post-sinning, this is really where it becomes very, very dangerous. Because what happens here is that the guilt is not focused on... Uh, there's an element of guilt where you say, you know, I made a mistake, I, I apologize, I fix it to, to the best of my ability, you forgive me, and it's done. But that's different than guilt. That's focusing on the actions that are necessary in order to repair the situation. Wonderful. I broke something, I fix it. I didn't break something physical, I broke a relationship, so I fix it, I repair it. But when the focus becomes on self-denigration, on how bad the person is, how worthless, how disappointed God is with you, how much he disapproves of you, how you'll never be that person that your father hoped you will be, or that Hashem hoped that you should be, or a Jew should be. What happens as a result of this? What happens as a result? People become closer to God. People become closer to themselves. People become happier people. People have more real chizuk and isairis in Avodah Hashem. It's the other way around. The Chayz of Lublin said, V'hasir satan milfanenu umeyachareinu. We say in Mayriv, take the satan away from in front and in back. He said, why is the satan in back? I know the satan in front of me. He's pointing. He says, here, come, come. <laughs> come down this way. This is a good path for you. Why is he in back? So he says, the satan in back is after the sin. <laughs> after. He's in back. And he says, ay, 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 ay. Oh, yeah, you a bad Jew. Now, it sounds like it's coming from sensitivity. <laughs> I'm holy. That's why I feel so bad. He said, it's the satan. It's the Sutton, the Chayz of Lublin. And in many ways, that Sutton is worse than the Sutton in front of you. Why? Because for the Sutton in front of you, we know that there's Tshuva. For the Sutton in back of me, there's no Tshuva. Because I think I'm doing Tshuva. <laughs> there's no Tshuva for guilt. Because you think it's Tshuva, that's the problem. At least I sinned. I know I have to do Tshuva. When I'm guilty, it looks like I'm being holy. And really, it's the biggest sin. Aaron of Karlin said, Atzvus is not an Avera. Depression is not a sin. Sadness is not. But what it can do, no sin can do. <laughs> what it can do, no sin can do. If I understand your answer to this question, is that the reality through which the real father and the son can be successful that way? Of course, guilt? of course. Without any guilt? Of course. I don't think we are aware that there are relationships that are possible without guilt. But I think those are the only relationships that are eternal, are powerful, and they're much deeper relationships. They're much more real relationships. Because you come into the relationship with your whole self. When I come into a relationship with guilt, I'm not there. 
When you go to a chasana because of guilt, how much of you is at the wedding? 1% or a half a percent? Your iPhone is at the wedding, right? You're not at a wedding. You came because of guilt. So you think when you're davening because of guilt, how much of you is by davening? When you're learning out of guilt, how much of you is... You're doing Shabbos out of anything. You're not there. You're saying a father can be with a son? Of course. Of course. 18 years and no guilt at all. Not 18 years, 90 years. Of course. No guilt at all. So, Maisa, how do you get to shul? Right now, I'm not interested in going to shul. You come to my shir. You come to my shir. You don't go to shir. Later on. The only thing thing getting me to go there is either I want to go there or I have guilt. And if I don't want to go there, then guilt is the only thing that could get me there. Well, what's the guilt? What what, what are you afraid of? What's the guilt? I'm just wondering. Because I don't have that guilt. I'm just trying to know. (laughs) Let's say you stay home. What's going to happen? I I think I need to ask some of the other chavrheads. Okay. Why do you go to shul on Shabbos? I'm going to lose my business. Which business are you going to lose? Who's taking it away? Yeah. Oh, you know how many Jews don't go to Shul on Shabbos? Most Jews don't go. And what happens to their business? Nothing, they're fine. Very successful, very successful. They make more money. They make more money. Who doesn't want to go somewhere for a vacation? So that's the guilt that you're going to lose your business? Or it's uh, Elam Hot? Like, what's the guilt? It's the right thing to do. I mean, what, you know... Right now, I'm not in the mood. In whatever. Okay. Let's let's. You're not a good Jew. You're not judged. You're not judged. By judged by who? By the community? By others. By not guilt. That's social pressure. I have, I have baruch guilt. I can't come to shul on Shabbos after baruch. You can't what? I have baruch guilt. I'm confessing. I have baruch guilt. Can't come to Shul Shabbos after bar. Explain the gift. Even I try. I, I want to come late because I'm not in the mood of being in that Shul. So my, you know, the latest time I'm willing to come is before bar. But explain the guilt. The guilt is because of people around or because. From what happens if you come after bar? I'm just trying to understand. It's beautiful. I'm just trying to understand. <laughs> I don't know. I'm complaining about it. <laughs> what, what why are you complaining about it? It should. Why doesn't it, it doesn't feel good? Yeah, I, I don't. Uh, yeah, that's. There's something the off about it. The whole teaching is that it's not supposed to come from that place. It's supposed to come from a place of of relationship. Right now, I'm sitting with, um, you know, my the, the goal is right now, I'm supposed to have a relationship with Hashem or with whomever I'm having this relationship with. And I'm supposed to be completely present and in their space, not in my space. And in the but you know, without guilt, you could come early and feel much better. But right, but but today my my emotions are saying uh, I'm not in the mood. You know, guilt. You know, rain doing all of this. You also guilty? No, I don't. Not anymore. Since I've been coming for a year, already, I'm living guilt free. Really? Yeah, whatever I do. And that's my fault, basically. <laughs> whatever I do. So I now I'm guilty. <laughs> Actually, I don't feel guilty. I don't feel guilty to make people not feel guilty. I really don't feel guilty about it. What should I tell you? Guilt. Maybe I'm really guilty, but I don't feel it. Why do you have to call it guilt? <clears throat> okay. He's just describing his feeling. When no, I, I was put, want to put a different perspective. The Friedrich ever says that the Yid comes time to daven. He gets nervous. He feels pressure. He must be in shul on time. The Friedrich ever calls it Yid Hashemayim. Why can't you call it Yid Hashemayim? Why don't so you call it guilt? Hard. Okay, that's Fear beautiful. Fear session guilt. That's right. beautiful. Fear, obsession, guilt. 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 Fear, obsession,
I would just say, let me, let me. Uh, okay, I think this is a good. I think this is a, an important conversation. I would just say one thing, okay? And Yiras uh, Ha'Einish is 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 part of Yiddishkeit. It's not like a horrible, horrible, uh, toxic uh, emotion that is evil. He even describes it here. He just says tzaddikim. You would think are not motivated by Yiras Ha'Einish, right? There's, there's the concept of Yiras Ha'Einish, but I don't think that's guilt. <laughs> I still don't think that's guilt. I don't think Yerushamayim is guilt. I think it's something else completely. Yerushamayim means I'm afraid to ruin such a powerful relationship. That's Yerushamayim. I'm afraid to ruin such a powerful relationship. Yerushamayim is also, I think, not guilt. I don't think it's guilt. The Yerushamayim means I'm afraid of the consequences, right? of doing something that is damaging to the other, to myself, to the world, to Hashem. So that's healthy. That's fine. I think it's very healthy. It's, it's a fact. It's a weirdness. It's a weirdness. My father died from diabetes. My uncle died from diabetes, right? So the doctor always tells me and my siblings, we like eating, as you maybe see. So... He always says, you know, you should be aware that these things are poison for you. Now, I love cheesecake. It's one of my uh, virtues. So uh, when I look at it, why am I not eating it? Okay, I usually do. But in those situations, <laughs> in those situations that I'm a good boy and I don't eat it, why? Why? That's called Yerusha'enish. Not because my organism is so in tuned with... Uh, with the adrenaline that should be flowing through it at every moment, that I look at, I take it, I do mindfulness, and from a cheesecake it turns into, uh, what did you say? It turns into a cup, and then it just turns into a a piece of grass, and then it turns into kale, and I don't like kale, so I'm not in the mood of the cheesecake anymore. (laughs) When I'm in a higher state of consciousness, I could look at it and say, there's really nothing in this for me. There's there's nothing in this that's for me. It's going to go into my body, and I'm just, I'm betraying my body. Sometimes it's literally years ha'inish, that basically when I eat it, 20 minutes later I get depressed, 20 minutes later I have to go to uh, visit the Pope, and then for three hours I'm trying to recover from the sugar and the carbs and the combination. Anybody relates to this? You eat certain things, and for three hours you're in a bad mood, okay? Is that, is that primitive? It is where I am. I know the consequences. And when you're aware of consequences, it's a very good thing. It's not a bad thing. I, I wouldn't call it guilt. I would call it awareness. I would call it awareness. There's a higher level of year, which is not about consequences. It's about the relationship. It's too powerful of a relationship that I'm going to let it fall apart. If I have a best friend whom I trust, and the person trusts me, and then somebody's talking about them negatively... And there's a part of me that wants to contribute to the juicy conversation because I know more stories about them than anybody else. And sometimes we're overtaken by that urge. But I'm saying, this is, this is too precious. It's too precious to me. Not because they're going to find out and they're going to, you know, do something to me. Not, not that. Even if nobody finds out, it's impossible, of course. But even if nobody finds out, it's just the... the, the it, it's it's a betrayal of something sacred. It's a betrayal of something sacred. You know, when somebody betrays a marriage, for example, if the marriage is sacred, 
And if the person has been there for you, and you have been there for them, and you're married, so you are there, you're soulmates, it's not the consequences, my wife will find out. Let's say she doesn't find out. Plenty of people go to Thailand, and their wives don't find out, trust me. <laughs> what is it? There's no consequence. I'm talking about Ben Adam Lachaveri, I'm not talking about what God knows. But it's, it's a betrayal of the relationship. I can't do this to you. Not because you're going to find out. Because it's too precious. It's still not Ava. This is Yira. But this is not, none of this is guilt. None of this is guilt. I don't see this as guilt. Well, all the examples I saw seem like, um, like Yira, you know, Yira. I think guilt is depression. Guilt is depression. Well, that's what I would think. Guilt is depression. If, you're not, if you say, I didn't go to shul and now you get depressed about it, that would be called guilt. Versus? Versus running to shul because if it's not you're gonna you say to yourself I'm gonna feel guilty because I'm gonna lose business or whatever whatever that's not guilt that's the relationship right if you beat yourself up about it because you yeah. say that like a more of a depression style that might be guilt maybe. Should I feel guilty about the hour now, or uh, no, no. I shouldn't feel I guilty? Feel guilty about stepping up and leaving. It's fine. Would you define guilt then as regret for oneself? I don't know. The word guilt uh, is 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 just. I think it's a word that's used so often, and people feel it so much. I think it has to be dissected. Is there a guilt that's a good guilt? Yeah, but I think our word guilt is too big, and it includes a lot of things that shouldn't be. So that's why I try to stay away from that word. I would say. I feel regret for something, yes. I feel remorse. I said something to somebody that insulted them. I feel remorse. Well, so what do I do? I could sit at home and say, I'm the worst person in the world. Well, who gains from that? Who gains? And God, the person? What Let's say, do. What, what's the right? Call them up. <laughs> Call them up and say, I said something to you yesterday. I apologize. Do you forgive me? They might say, No. Okay, I may ask them again the next day or the next week, fine. They might say, sure, yes. I say, thank you, that's it, done, boom, did I learn a lesson? Yeah, I learned a great lesson, that's it. Why am I sitting and wallowing in that space? Why? What is this about? This is not about what I did. This is about that essentially I feel that I'm an unjustifiable creature. My creation always has to be justified. I always have to find excuses why I'm worthwhile. And whenever there's a moment that I make a mistake, it just reveals to me the truth that I'm really black, I'm really evil. That's it. That's what happened. And that's what I'm feeling. I'm not even guilty about what I did. Because if I would be guilty of what I did, you could fix it. Call up and apologize. Do tshuva. There's something called tshuva. Why don't you believe in it? God says, I forgive you. And we say, it's not true. <laughs> That's the greatest apicursus. That's not called guilty. It's called depression. That, okay, fine. Hashem says, I forgive you. And we say, it's not true. <laughs> it's not true. God says, I love you. We say, it's not true. Avas it's not true. Not a guy like me. <laughs> you don't know me, Hashem. That's, my, that's called apicursus. That's what I would call apicursus. The biggest apicursus today is that you believe that God doesn't believe in you always. That's, I think, the definition of apicursus in 2016. I don't think any people have issues with God today. People have issues with themselves. Everybody believes in God. Nobody believes in themselves. 
That's the biggest of the curses. That God created you, He loves you, He wants you, He forgives you. He wants to be in this great relationship with you, and I don't believe it. I'm like, I'm damaged. I'm damaged. I'm so scarred, I'm so wounded. I'm such, why? I did this, I did that. Okay. You did this, so what? So look in Shulchan Aruch, it says, do tshuva, I forgive you. I forgive you. It's over, clean, boom, not, next. Not only that, if you do tshuva, I make your avedas into mitzvahs. In other words, I appreciate your sins. Even your sins are lovable. That's what the Gemara says in Yuma. It's not, it's not the Pistoidus Lakshin. It's not the Pistoidus Lakshin. Rish Lakish said it. Rish Lakish said all sins become mitzvahs. Why don't people believe this? Because they, we're not focusing on the sin. It's not Yerushamayim. This is a wounded form. This is a wounded form of, 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 of religion where we see our relationship with God based on negativity. We are ultimately really angry at Him for giving us this religion. That's what, that's what I feel. That the people that are serving God with guilt, what they're really saying is, I will never forgive God for giving me such a crazy, repressive religion. Who, what normal God would invent Taryag Mitzvahs if not for sadism, to crush and destroy people. That's what is really going on subconsciously. But you're not allowed to say this because then you're going to get Gehenna. <laughs> right? So the worst than abuses that you're not allowed to say you're abused. You know that. Worse than, <laughs> worse than being abused is, is, ask anyone who went through abuse, worse than being abused is that you're not allowed to talk about it. You have to smile. You always have to smile. That's much worse. If I could talk about it, okay, it happened. I got hurt. Here it is. It's painful. When I can't talk about it, now what happens? Now, I'm not going to even acknowledge that there was pain. I'm not going to even acknowledge that there was darkness. Okay. A lot of our guilt, I think, is a lot of us in a deep place believe that Judaism or the religion, the way we practice it, has elements that are very, very difficult. And it's like, what God would want us? Like, you really need Shachas, Mincha, Maidif, Tefillin, Tzitzis, Kashrus, Lamentas, Malachas of Shabbos, Boirir, Muktze, Dosh. It's like, really? I mean, give me a break. Especially when you see the outside world and all of secularism and modernity is based on the fact that you do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, wherever you want. Shabbos, Yom Tov, seven days a week, Everybody does whatever they want. Huh? And suddenly here, oil, oil, melech, melech, melech. How do I get people to live a life where every detail is governed? You can't even tie the shoe you want to tie first. You can't even cut any nail. Wait, wait, wait. There's a system how we cut nails. Stop. Even in the bathroom there are rules. Who gives rules in the bathroom? Even Padre didn't mix into what happens in the bathroom. In the bedroom, there's rules for everything. Lettuce, no. Broccoli, the worst thing that ever happened. Coleslaw, forget about it. How do you deal with this? How do you educate people with all of this? And we're talking about fruma erlich eaten. So the easy way to do it is, yeah, there's this big creature in heaven who's very powerful. He has infinite muscles. And he set the rules. And if you don't listen, this is what's going to happen. So now, what type of perception are people having of this Creator? What type of... And the worst is, you have to say, I love Him. (laughs) 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 
So therefore, so we repress a lot of this, and it comes out in guilt. I think the guilt is not that, that I miss davening. The guilt is a symptom of a deep hatred or anger or frustration that I have towards a system that's really crushing me constantly. But I can't say that because I'm afraid, because I'm guilty. So therefore, I find other things in which to say it, but I think it's an expression of that. I think it's that's, that's what I see very often. At least. Can I ask a question which would clarify a lot of it? You can ask any question you want in this room. Can you explain your guilty feeling about the time well, what? Oh, actually, I was joking. <laughs> I wasn't feel. Do you really have a guilty feeling, or you don't? No, no. I was saying, should I feel guilty that it's so late? No, no. I, did, I don't have a guilty feeling about it. I do. Maybe I don't feel. Maybe subconscious could be subconscious. You weren't guilty when you made the joke. No, I understood that. Huh? Uh, again, maybe maybe we're just using different words. I think what's necessary for tshuva is uh, accountability, acknowledgement, a remorse. Uh, I don't know why the w- you want to use the word guilt. Fine, I'm I'm not an enemy of the word guilt. I'm just. What about in marriage? Could you have a marriage that's guilt-free? Same, same thing, right? Do people remain loyal to their wives out of guilt or not? Exactly the same. If it's a very superficial marriage, yes. I mean, probably you don't remain loyal either. The problem with, you know, society, us, I think we are on a deep level, but that nobody believes it. And therefore, it, we don't speak about deep levels, because we underestimate that people are really deep. Look at all these people. Are they not deep? Look at this young man. I think you have a very population of Really? So you're all the crazy people you <laughs> Speak for yourself, Eliezer. I'm very normal. Somebody is not here superficial. Yes, you can't go out to somebody and tell them you're not guilty. Like polling, you know, you poll in New York City. It's not going to be representative of the country, right? You can't poll this crowd. I see. The pollsters are always all wrong, though, we so, I, I have a different take on this. One second, you'll miss it. On the Baruch question that was asked before, you know, if, if, with that, if you take away the guilt, what's going to get me there before Baruch If you put it into the paradigm of a marriage, it's, it's like a husband saying, you know, my, I told my wife I'm going to be home at 6. If you take away the guilt, why should I be home at 6? Without guilt, why should I be home? I'll come home at 11 o'clock at night without the guilt. Don't come home. We don't come home without the guilt. <laughs> no, but if a husband says, I'm, without the guilt, there's no reason for me to come home. Because you, you want to be Oh my gosh, what, what, what kind of marriage is this? But a lot of husbands come home out of the guilt. Or they're harsh and afraid. Their wife, it doesn't, somebody once told me, the screaming that's going to happen if I come home late, it's not worth it. But we would understand that's not that's guilt, it's fear of consequence. And a chanami, that's fear of, a, of, I don't know, consequence, but whatever. But we would understand that's, that's a type of problem. problem. So Havan says, says that, we say, oh, guilt. perfect, you have a great marriage. I think guilt is created because you know deep down what's right. 
Exactly. If he didn't have it, if it wasn't hardwired what the right thing is, he wouldn't be guilty. So you're saying it's a good thing? It's a good thing. If you can't, if it's, if it's um, like guilt for being based on your perception. So why should somebody come home before six if not for guilt? Because he loves his wife. He wants the, wants the relationship. Hopefully in a marriage we could understand it better than with God. That, that paradigm still exists, I think, even in the firm world. So why do you want to be in Shul before Barcho? So what would be a different way of being motivated to be in Shul before Barcho? I like saying Barcho. The same thing that would motivate me to be home at 6 for my wife. I want to have this loving relationship with God. And I could spend time in a very special way. Look, in our culture it sounds weird with God. I heard a maise from a yid. His name is Dr. Ira Weiss. He's a cardiologist in Chicago. <clears throat> Dr. Ira Weiss. And the Lubavitcher Rebbe had a, suffered a heart attack in the middle of a kofis, Shmini Atzeris, one year. One heart attack, a double heart attack. It was like almost cardiac arrest. They didn't think he'll make it. In Shul, in the middle of a kofis. And he went to his room, and uh, he stayed in his room for... Uh, was Kislev was, uh, was that, uh, a month and a half. They made like a hospital. And Dr. Ira Rice came from Chicago on Simchas to serve as a cardiologist. So Rishchaytish Kislev finally let him go home. Go back. He lived on President Street from, from Shulwe. They had like this mini hospital. So Dr. Ira Rice said that uh, he saw the Rebbe very excited that he's going home. So he thought, he said, he said, why are you so excited to go home? So he thought he would say that, uh, you know, uh, whatever, I can have some privacy, I could just go back to my normal life, etc. So he said that I have a custom for many, many, all the years, I have tea with my wife every day. We drink tea for 20 minutes. And for me, that is as precious as putting on tefillin. That's as precious as putting on tefillin. Huh? So that's why he was very happy he could do that. So, you know, there's like a... a, a and I think that the dogma, it says... In the words of the Rebbe, it says in Tikkuni Zoyar that... Uh, <laughs> it was tefillin. It says in Tikkuni Zoyar that the tabas of Kedushin... <laughs> it says in the Kedushin, the tabas of Kedushin is basically the p'china of... Uh, of tefillin, the ritzuis of tefillin is the, the, the is like the tabas that you put on every day. To be you know, the, the, the marriage is a muscle for the marriage in Hashem and the Jewish people. Okay, this is uh, my entire. But uh, the vart, I think, is um, it's a perspective. For, for that, you have to have a relationship. Some people don't want to tea twenty minutes. You wanted to say something, and I think it's time to. Uh, I don't want to hold the line. Monday, tomorrow, there's no shear. Yes, I don't know if we'll continue this on Monday. But we'll continue something on Monday. This is important? Okay. Say what you want to say. I mean, what you what you should be saying, or whatever it is. I didn't find out about the Torah until I was 30 years old. And Speak loud. You sure. didn't find out about the Torah until you are 30. Until yeah. I was 30, and uh, 35 years ago. And we had a uh, Chabad Shliach was in my house. We were living in Rye, the nice life. Everything was wonderful. And I learned my first Rashi. And the, they threw Yosef into the pit, and the pit was empty. Snakes and scorpions. And then the, the relationship of, of no water is death. And water was Torah. 
And without that, there's no life. And it flipped a switch inside of me. And from that moment on, for those 35 years, the more I could do, I found out about tzitzis, I want to wear them. At night, good, let's wear them at night. Wool, wool. Going to shul, if I miss Barco, okay, so I was doing something with the kids, then I got there. But I want to go. If I am falling asleep at night, oh, I didn't, I didn't daven? Good, I get to, I get to daven. I know that's, it sounds... Didn't sound like a lot of the other experiences. Well, they come, they're FFBs. Yeah, I know. I never, I, I know. <laughs> I, I feel, and I, I, I honestly and truly feel sorry for them for that. Mm. So I feel sorry for myself. That you, a lot of the words you say in Hebrew, oh, well, yeah, Yiddish, okay. I'm, it's coming, it's coming. I haven't had time to sit because of having to work and support and things like this. But to do all these things, now I'm involved with a, a Hesed organization that I'm helping out. How do you feel and when it's, you And it's... I came home from a shir when we first started this, and I had a friend Rabbi Yehuda Beck, and Yehuda lay back. And I was, he goes, how was it? And I started going like this, telling him, da, da, da. I was like, you're moving. This is what you got to do. In the wintertime, when it's a cold morning, and you got to bed really late, and you have a lot of excuses, and you have a lot to do that day, remember this feeling. Because staying in bed for an extra hour, you're not going to have it. So connecting in to the, to the joy of learning, to the joy of going going to a shir, to the joy of being in shul, to the joy of sitting at a kiddush, at a forbringen, and all the other stuff that happens in life. And it, it happens to all of us, all the other things. And and if you miss something, what do you do with the guilt? I missed it. What do you do? We have a thing. Yeah, I, you, 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 missed, you missed Mincha because you were involved. Through. Oh, the clock changed. You didn't do it? Okay, so I do an extra one extra. Matter. What can you do? What happened? <laughs> What are you going to do? Didn't grow up in Satna. <laughs> Put you in my pocket and walk around with you. <laughs> there was, a, there was a, a, a book that I read by... Uh, you see? The way he's saying it, it's not a fact. The way he's saying it, I was always thinking of you, so now you think if you take this feeling away from kids, the one guilt, more thing, one more thing. there'll be less from or more from? What do you think? If they don't have to have this, I miss Mincha, I'm the worst thing ever. I'm going to be in Gehenna forever. Or, wow, I could do another Meyer. <laughs> That's great. Tomorrow morning you can get the shift. The, uh, the first time I had your Chiddush with the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the, uh, I know the Rebbe's a big guy, he's an important guy. Uh-oh, I should have a big question. I was at the very beginning of my finding out of my Yiddish guy. And I'm online waiting, waiting, and now I'm before the Rebbe. So I had no question. And I wasn't overwhelmed, but uh, a question came out of me, and I was shocked to hear it because I didn't think of it. It was not intellectually generated. I said, how can I change my desires and lusts for things in the world into desires and lusts for Torah? I was surprised to hear the question. The Rebbe wasn't. He said I should be besimcha. And a little more did that, and then I walked away. I thought, like, oh, what? I'm Mr. Happy. What kind, of, what kind of advice is this? What kind of an answer is this? But then, over the next 30 plus years, when things happen, and I have this tremendous bracha for simple that the Rebbe gave me, clearly, that's my take on it, that, okay, this happened. Let's, let's deal with it. So you asked the Rebbe, how could you change your lust? Do you know what lusts are? Desires and lusts. Tithes. For Elam Haza, for this, to Kedusha, to Torah. 
lusts and desires of this world for Torah. Yes. So the Rebbe's advice was, you should be besimcha. Yes. Think about that. If I sent my children, instead of sending them to the yeshivas that I sent them to, if I sent them to Eshat Torah or Sameach, they would be hearing the same thing. This, this is what's taught in the Kirov Rechaikah movement, the people are coming into Yiddishkeit, by the same people that send their kids to yeshivas that don't teach them, that teach them. We are here for pleasure. In one sense, I think Baruch Hashem, I never went to Yeshiv because I hear all these horror stories. <laughs> <laughs> and I see what happened to some of my children. She was like, "Are you kidding?" I had big fights with you, like their heads up. Isn't there a Shiva private school? You know, don't you, I'm supposed to get some kind of individualized. This is what the kid needs. And I see some of these posters up for some of these guys who hold themselves as as Rosh Yeshivas that they're having this. And I said, "Are you kidding?" I would spit on those guys if, if, if it wasn't a nice thing to do. But <laughs> no, I, I have no use for them. Zero. I think the thing what they did in the stadium about telephones, we should have him talk over there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Do you feel was answering you saying you should have some or the brothers that he gave you? That, that, oh. that was oh, many levels. It was, it was like here. Yeah, but it's an interesting idea. Most people wouldn't think, how do you change your loss from this world, from a lot of Kedusha, through Simcha, through guilt. <laughs> through guilt. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.